This is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Cold as Life, Where Are We Going? Which is the remastered version of the track, which was featured on Born to Land Hard. If you had listened to the Post-America Podcast episode with Lord Dom from A389 Records and Integrity, Lord Dom is re-releasing the Board to Land Hard, Detroit classic hardcore record by Cold as Life. This is the second track to come out remastered. This is the debut of it. For me, this is one of my favorite all-time Coldest Life songs, so I'm very honored to have this on the show. You can check out all the stuff that Lord Dom and Coldest Life have coming out on Instagram at Coldest Life Official. Check it out. This episode is a long time in the making. In fact, I think I reached out to him sometime in mid-September, and it took a little bit of timing, a little bit of... Jeff wanted to wait till Colder's Life had some things more active so we could talk about. And I'm just really happy to be able to reconnect with my friend and have his story on our show and delve deep into the things that I feel is necessary to highlight in Jeff's life and what he has going on right now. But before we get to that, this show is dedicated to the loving memory of Ashley Ann Laura Gunnels, whose birthday would have been today, March 5th, 1988. May God rest her soul. We've spoken about Cold as Life and Jeff on quite a few podcast episodes already. And for those who want to get caught up, we were able to interact with Cold as Life while being roadies for Dysphoria. And their hospitality and generosity towards anyone they shared the stage and the road with is absolutely unmatched. Later on, while I was on tour with Punishment, Jeff and the guys would open their homes to us give us places to stay, help us with shows, loan us gear, and we're the epitome of gentlemen. And in that old school way of one hand washes each other, we all got each other's backs. And this is something that stuck with me throughout the rest of my life. Jeff Gunnels is someone who I haven't seen since the summer of 2005. I had a great time reconnecting with an old friend, someone who mentored us, someone who I looked up to, and I'm very happy to call a brother. This episode was actually recorded in two sessions, somewhere around the hour 45 minute mark. We had some interference and internet disconnection, so we took it up another day. There's a little context that's rough for a minute, but then we jump right back into it. I really hope you enjoy this one. We are talking to Jeff Gunnels, who is a figure in the Detroit hardcore scene that recently has not only came back to freedom out of prison but has been on featured in multiple podcasts band cold as life which he is synonymous with has kind of gotten a next breath of fresh air remastering tracks are coming out merch is coming out and this is the podcast that i've been waiting for for months to do jeff thank you for coming on the show hey man my pleasure brother good to see you Nah, great to see you man sincerely it's been it's been some years, my friend. It certainly has, and I feel like I feel like this is an interesting medium for you because I know that as mad years ago, cold as life was something of an anomaly where you didn't see yourselves in the uh, zine world as much. There wasn't any people asking, and now we have multiple podcasts. We have Instagram posts constantly. It's great to see you in the modern age coming back out and and i think a lot of people not only 
uh, old guys from the back of the day, but a lot of young kids really, really are attached to the stories that are around Calder's life, but more some of the personages. And there's no one that people have asked me more about since you pop back up podcast to have you on the show. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on here. Hey, good to be here, man. Hey, I'm a digital retard. I wouldn't be uh, here unless uh, you and some other people had kind of coached me because I'm a kind of a caveman and this whole digital age is something brand new to me. Plus, I've been under a rock for for some years, but yeah, it's good to be here, pal. We're going to go right to where I go with all my podcasts. You were born in 1970. Were you always born in, were you always from Michigan? Yeah, yeah. The only state I've lived in. Did you live in the city or did you live out a little outside of it? I lived in the city and outside of the city. Yep. My my younger years, uh when my mom and dad what what's that? I was gonna say, what was your what was your child yeah, what was your childhood home like when you first like, you know, before you even even were like ten years old? What was like the childhood homes like? Uh, my mom and dad divorced when we were young. I think I was about seven or eight years old. Uh, up until then, it was, you know, typical American kid get growing up or typical American family growing up. There was, uh, there were some drugs and my dad was kind of, kind of wild. Um, you know, he had his friends and his, his thing that he tried to keep separate from the family. Um, but it kind of bled, kind of overlapped. Uh, when they got divorced, uh, you know, it was kind of, you know, shaky at best at times, but my dad, uh, was the one that stuck by me and my brothers, me and my brothers were a handful. My mom split immediately from the picture. My dad raised me and my brothers. It's been, uh, youth home and, you know, constant trouble and, uh, I, I mean, listen, man, I'm not trying to play no pity party, man. There's people out there that have it a lot worse, but uh, it, it, we went through it a little bit, but we grew up uh, uh, before the divorce and uh, for a little while after in Wayne County uh, outside of the city. And when I came of age, you know, I shot right to the city and lived in and around the city most of my life, but but as a young kid, we were out in uh, Plymouth Canton area, which is uh, maybe 25 minutes outside the city. Now, a lot of people have been on the show who have had similar kind of uneasy backgrounds. What do you think, beyond just the background of that, that got you into music that wasn't just like your typical radio music? What, what like, obviously, 1970s. You know, we there's a usually a picture of, you know, drugs and cocaine and disco music, but there was also like Kiss and Alice Cooper and this hard rock shit. What was the first music that you think you were really drawn to as a kid? And how did that did that relate well to like when shit was going bad with you and your brothers when it was just like you guys together with your dad? I always connected with a little heavier music than you know that poppy disc. I never you know disco was never on on, on my turntable. Or nor my father's man, but we were listening to Seeger and Skinner as kids. But uh, I always just wanted something more, you know. Being young, coming up, and coming up the way I did, or the way you did. I know there's some years in between our ages, but I always wanted something more. I I was uh, full of angst and I was pissed at the world, and I just wanted heavier and heavier and heavier. And uh, 
I found the Venoms and the Celtic Frost, the Slayers, and you know, then the, uh, then it kind of transformed into the punk scene, the Addicts and Vice Squad and Angelica and Cockney Rejects and Coxbar and you know, it was just kind of a a natural fit for how I felt inside. Now, it's always been interesting to me as a student of the early part of hardcore. And I noticed that specifically Michigan always had a special touch of interest in the English bands that you brought up. And obviously we see that with like um, negative approach to in the cover of some, some of the English bands. Was you Were you influenced... I guess we should go from you were talking about like when you were younger and then, you know, you kind of came to age, got in the city. Where was your first interactions with that kind of stuff with like the Venoms? Like, how did you check into that? And then how did you eventually pick up on the angelic upstarts and the things that were more synonymous with like the early Detroit hardcore world? Oh, geez. Uh, you know, just getting turned on the pe- turned on by the people that were uh, familiar with it. You know, like I like you mentioned, man, we we grew up kind of listening and being familiar with uh with some of the metal shit from America, some of the hardcore stuff from America and being from Detroit, there was a there was a lot of old school dudes in the scene that just turned you on, you know, and once they they put you on to something new and something different, some from some other part of the world, you either grabbed it or threw it away and I kind of gravitated towards uh towards some of that English influence. Were you were you person who went to big concerts or was your first interaction with those kind of people through like a smaller club or music what was your first like live music experience that got you connected to these people so 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 joe this is this would be funny to you man but i remember seeing slayer on a one foot stage in blondies in a 300 capacity room with uh with voivod and creator you know standing elbow to elbow as a kid as a 14 year old kid we used to go to this club called blondies that had all these great shows and as a 14 year old kid, you could you could bring a handful of change and get a pitcher of beer and see your the, the, a band that you wanted to see for years. But, uh, you know, I went to big shows, but I like the small, the more intimate venues a lot better. There was a place called the Greystone in the city. No, there was a lot of great venues in the city, but uh, uh, the Greystone, Blondies, the Latin Quarter, uh, 404 Willis. Uh, there, there's a ton of good ones down there. So you're like early, you're like barely in high school and this is like your outlet Were you guys going down, uh, to all together as a group or was this like a handful or like one or two years? So the first time I went to the Greystone, <clears throat> I was playing in a, in a metal band in high school and, uh, I went with these two brothers, right. And we pull up and there's Mohawks and Liberty spikes and fighting and, Right. And they didn't want to go in, but I was, I said, drop me off. And I, I, I left by myself, man. I got out of the car and went in to see, uh, I think it was ugly, but proud, uh, Daigle abortions. And, uh, God, I can't remember, but, uh, these guys split, these guys didn't want to go in. This is when I went in and got my first taste of a real punk show. And, uh, I was, I was sold, man. Hook, line and sinker. I was in now. This is the same time as like Michigan is starting to feel the downturn from like some of the auto plant shutting down at the time. And also the city was getting a little rougher, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The 80s and 90s 
the city was a, a dangerous place. It still is in certain areas, but in the eighties and nineties, it was, it was rough, man. So my dad, my dad was an auto worker <clears throat> and, uh, he retired after 35 years at a plant in, in Detroit. Well, not Detroit, but, uh, in Livonia, Michigan. And, uh, it used to house, it was a square mile plant. It was the largest single plant with the most employees in the state there were, you could drive by that place in the early eighties, late seventies. And the parking lot was a sea of vehicles. I remember him telling me that these Germans were in there putting in all this automation and he was worried about job security for his, for the people he worked with. And slowly, but surely, man, that parking lot now has got 250 cars parked in it at any given time. Whereas back then in the seventies and eighties, there was 2,500 cars parked in that parking lot, all good paying jobs, benefits and health insurance and retirement. And a lot of people call this technology progress, but you know, at the end of the day, man, it takes jobs from, from people that, that have families to support. No, it's very similar to the neighborhood in which we grew up in, which was a classic build a bunch of factories and then give people uh, row homes so they could get close to work and do that. The deindustrialization, which is um, earlier than the plant fallout, really fucked up the neighborhood. And a lot of the people that worked in our neighborhood started working in places like cabinet shops. And I was lucky because my fathers and uncle were already cabinet makers. And I, I, I started working in a place in 1997 where there was like 35 or 40 guys, no machinery. And 10 years later, I couldn't make more than 17, 18 bucks an hour because they had four machines that did the work of 30 guys. So I had to go right. union concrete, you know? Right. 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 And that's, that's happening everywhere, Joe, everywhere. So what I, I brought that up because I find that especially in all the major cities, punk and hardcore scenes, and even in the metal scenes, there's kind of a disparaging look that the youth have. Like, I don't have a fucking future. I don't have a job. Do you think that you, do you think that was really felt in the Detroit area at the time? Absolutely. Absolutely. It still is now because everybody's got, uh, I'm blessed because I have a, a real good job uh, working for the power company, man. But <clears throat> there's a lot of people out there that, uh, that don't have a, a great outlook, you know what I mean, for their future. There's a lot of service jobs, a lot of 12, 15 buck an hour jobs. And the day, man, if you got a family to feed, that don't buy groceries. I, I, I wonder if because you're young and the background that you already had at home, is that what drove you to start trying to play music and be in these bands because you were excited about the music? Like, what was the thing that made you start trying to not just be at the shows but start playing music? Uh I, I guess being a fan of music for one, but also knowing that something and I wanted to talk about it. You know what I mean? I want I wanted a, a platform to for for me to 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 say what I wanted to say. Now, did you initially link up with other people before you found the hardcore scene? Like you, you were because you were going to metal shows. Like what came first? Do you find in the hardcore scene or you started playing in metal bands? Uh I was playing in metal bands from like Roy and I started playing together in like fuck mid eighties, I want to say. And, uh, we were more, more metal. And then, uh, and then, you know, we just started growing into the, to the hardcore punk thing. And it kind of just morphed into that. At that, at that stage, because of the venues were this about the same size, 
even though you're involved in metal, were you cognizant of like the punk and hardcore world? Because the shows were in the same clubs. Like, did you have interactions with a lot of the all oh, yeah. OG hardcore dudes, like the Necros and you know bands like that? Oh yeah, Necros, one of my favorites, bro. Yeah, one of my favorites. Yeah. So back then, you know, there was the underground underground genre of music, right? Yeah. And if it was heavy and it was good, then then you were there. I would go to a Voivod show, a Creator show, a Venom show. But then I would go see GBH and Suicidal Tendencies. And you know what I mean? And sometimes those bands would play together. So there wasn't the division that there is nowadays. You know what I mean? People people stick to the genre that they fly on the back of their jacket or on the pin or the T-shirt they're rocking. Back then, it was all the same. It was the underground music scene. And, uh, of course, there was there were some fights and there was some, you know what I mean, some pushback. But at the end of the night, man people were still going whether you had long hair and wearing leather gauntlets on your wrist or you had fucking liberty spikes you were still at the same shows no especially um i always look at this thing from like a historical thing because we're talking about time when i'm still in single digits i'm still like a child but i feel like from the early the late 70s to the early the early part of the 90s the subcultures were blended more easily like you're talking about and so like you bring up gbh and voivod and slayer there's three three separate people now that would be listening. I don't listen to that. I just listen to this. Um, how how much of an influence then was the Meat Men, the negative approach, uh, the negative approaches, the Necros, in what eventually you would uh, play later on? Did you were you cognizant and like very involved in that, or just kind of aware of them? Oh, huge influence. I mean, we're all influenced by our life experience, whether it's something we're listening to, whether it's something we're listening to or, or an experience we've had, uh, the things that go under the go on underneath the roofs that we that we live in and the blocks that we stay on, their influences on our lives. You know what I mean? So music, the things that we were listening to, the shows we were going to see, the things we went through as kids or the people we lost, they were all huge influences on our lives. And it, I mean, you could look at the lyrics in the coldest life, you know what I mean? And you see they're all personal experiences. They're not talking about things we don't know about. They're th- talking about things that we've lived and and understood and experienced. Did you did you have a band early on before you began doing those lyrics that that, res- that resonated that kind of stuff that made you want to do that? Was there one specific or just a general that you wanted like a general idea that you wanted to do that? Yeah, you know, um, like with no, I, I, I don't know, Joe, when I would write, <clears throat> I think that, uh, it would just come out from, from, uh, w- what was inside, you know what I mean? And they, they tended to be about things that I knew about instead of, you know, something that I wanted to communicate, you know what I mean? No, I, I think a lot of what we do comes from just the angst and, and, and that's something that really, it's really interesting that you in the 1980s and the same as people in so many different parts of hardcore but yet what makes your story and coldest life story more gritty is that there it's it's got a different it's got a different landscape around it and one of the interesting things that also you guys stayed in touch with like your actual roots of hardcore like for people who are younger don't realize like the, the people like Todd Swalla and Tesco V and Ron and Harold and um, especially John Brandon, like these guys are raw dudes who are just being real, getting it out there. And you could see sometimes 
bands from the 90s missed the whole 80s part, but I feel like Cold as Life took that and took that angst from Detroit earlier stages and just put it in a, in a new phrase. And I really, I, I think that younger kids who are unfamiliar with the Necros and unfamiliar with these bands need to understand that that was your influence. Do you understand? I agree. I agree, man. Some bands, I mean, I'm not dissing any younger generation or, or their bands or anything like that whatsoever, right? But it seems like now there's a trend going on that if a band is tasting any kind of success or getting any kind of fan base, they want a bigger fan base and a bigger following. So what they do is they try to write accordingly. You know, they'll they'll do a little of this and do a little of that so that they increase their fan base. Well, they fucking alienate the people that were true to them from the beginning. So it ends up shooting themselves in the foot. But if you stay true, then, you know, and real recognizes real. And people will always gravitate to real. That all this fantasy bullshit out there now, and all this portraying going on out there, it, it's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. No, I, I actually, yeah, I just released an episode yesterday where me and Richie Crotch talk about when hardcore bands start really getting popular, they they do completely change, thinking, well, if I write this one thing this way, I'll get more. You literally just alliterated what we had in the podcast last night that came out. And I and I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Now, you and Roy are doing these metal bands. What was the urge to start playing more in the hardcore vein? Did you were you linking up with different guys that wanted to do that? Was this metal starting to not be something you wanted to play in? What made you started shifting in the direction of uh Cold of Life? I I don't think it was a, a conscious shift. I think it was just uh you know something that happened. You know what I mean? We 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 never said, oh, we're going to be this or we're going to do that. We were just angry, pissed young kids making angry, pissed music. You know? Now, well, I wonder if, and, I, and you look at metal and you look at hardcore, hardcore kind of stayed in a certain track the whole time. And like by like 1988, where you're like, your demo's coming out and you guys had already kind of been playing for a bit. Master of Puppets was out. Metal, like slight, metal was getting like way bigger. And I feel like maybe because hardcore stayed raw and stayed gritty, that you guys were more, was, do you think you were more enamored with hardcore at that stage? Just because it seemed like metal had hit like a, like a bigger wave in the later part of the 80s? Yeah, I've, I've never been a mainstream type person, whether it be uh, consuming, you know, goods. You know what I mean? I'm not a Starbucks, Home Depot, Metallica type person, man. I, I like mom and pop, underground, behind the scenes type, you know, things. And uh, commercial music, arena rock or whatever, however you want to call it. It, it, it didn't really appeal to me. You know, I like I like the underground, man. I like real. So did you guys I, I know you probably told it in other podcasts, but just for people listening to this one, can you give me the short rundown of how you guys linked up the original lineup for what would be the first Coldest Life uh, lineup? Uh, well, Roy and I started. We get we hooked up with Jay Way. He was uh he was from Plymouth area, and I knew him. He played guitar, and uh and we started messing around, writing music, and we didn't have a a bass player or a singer. <clears throat> And uh, we knew of Ron and he knew of us and uh, we, we brought him out for a tryout 
to to see what he thought and to see what we thought and and we clicked right away. The guy he brought to play bass, uh, he was more kind of an oi guy, you know what I mean? He was uh, Jimmy Doom's little brother from ALD, and ALD oh, yeah. was more of a more of a oi ish type band, and uh, and I think that's what he wanted to do. So he didn't he didn't stick around. Ron did, and uh, and that's that's how we met, and that's how we uh, we became called his life. I uh, I actually brought up uh, ALD and that kid Terrazone's podcast because I remember you guys shouting them out and being like. I didn't like we try to find what that band like almighty lumberjacks of death. I gotta see what this band sounds like. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. But actually team. big dog, big dog from Coldest Life, that that last guitar player we had when he was playing with Johnny. Uh he was in ALD back in the yeah, day. I remember you guys when I when I first met him, when you guys when he came into the band, you're like, oh, he was and I was like, holy shit. Cause I remember you guys shouting them out and that thanks list, and we're like, dude, we gotta hear this band. This band's like the coolest name. Was that that guy yeah. Jake or did Jake come later? Jake, Jake came later. Oh, all right, Jake yeah, because I remember. Because I, I remember uh, actually one time we came through with this warrior, and, and you're like, "Oh, this is Jake. He was in a band back in the day. I heard he just passed for listening, man. I'm sorry about that, but that was a cool yeah. guy we met." Um, yeah. what was Detroit hardcore scene like for when Coda's Life really started playing? Like, how what were the shows like? Was it um was it different than the kind of shows when you first started what was uh detroit hardcore like when coda's life was actually able to start playing your first couple shows it was it was always tense man everybody was always on edge you know like uh everybody wanted to bleed fall back and 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 wait for it to happen because it usually happened and you know there was a lot of fights um there was uh you know we had to we had to police our scene because back then there was a lot of fuck pecker woods, man, racists that would come around and just start problems. So we, we had a lot of fighting to do and a lot of uh, policing to do. So um, it, it wasn't all that fun. You know, it was more tense and standoffish. And uh, you know, we had to, we had to fight for, for our places to play. Were you doing? But, the same- I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't great shows because there was. There was. It was a great time, and I was just telling uh, my pal Joey, Joey drink tickets from uh, Without Warning, and oh, the blood shit. and the beer uh, that I miss the old days. There's there's some things that I miss about it, you know. Uh, but it was it was standoffish, man. People came to shows to uh, to fly the flags they were flying. You know what I'm saying? Rather than go to see a show. They were they weren't coming for the music. They were coming to get their point across and uh, you know take stand their ground. And so it was it was it wasn't all that fun. But looking back, it kind of was. <laughs> that's a that's something that was also spoken a lot towards the end of the '80s. The people who resonated with hardcore but had really far out, not regular hardcore politics were getting emboldened to kind of come out and say hey fuck you we like this music but here's our swastikas and shit and right i i know you and i spoke on it and you're like kind of like yeah it's these fucking bumpkins who out in the counties would come down to the city to try to fucking start some shit and it had to be the whole city versus these guys from out of town which is very yeah. similar to new york was very similar to philly and pa where it's out in the woods where these motherfuckers would come from so it's a i can relate heavily to that you know right yeah. Now, were you were you link? I, I know uh, you would eventually link up with AF in '90, but were there bands before 
from out of Detroit that you guys started linking up with in the beginning? Were there any others? Yeah, like but beyond Detroit and the Michigan area, like was was AF the first band from out of town that you linked up with, or was there like there's people closer that you were linking up with to play beyond just Detroit? Uh, well, AF was, are the ones that kind of brought us in. Uh, we played with them in Detroit at the cap, or not Detroit, but Flint, which is a city uh, maybe yeah. two hours north of Detroit. We played with them there, uh, and they liked us, and they brought us out to New York, and that just opened the door. We started playing with, uh, you know, all the all the bands that that you know of, you know, all the East Coast bands and some of the Midwest Chicago bands and. But AF was definitely the guys that brought us in and brought us out of Detroit. I feel like, especially at that time, um, New York hardcore was still trying to figure out how to get out to play beyond New York and the East Coast. So it just happened to be that you guys linked well because they're, especially we're talking, this is like 1990. So unless a metal band would take a hardcore band out on a tour or a hardcore band would do a small tour, there isn't the tour tracks that would come later. So how was it for you? Were you guys mainly playing Detroit? And then if you would link up with an AF or what were you guys trying to do with cold as life as a band, just like playing at that time? Well, well Joe, that's what bands did back then because there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, booking agents that would take on a hardcore band. Cause there was a lot of trouble that would come and come with it. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, they're not huge shows. So they're not, there's not a ton of money to be made. So we would trade, shows you know we would go out to new york for a weekend they would come to the midwest and then we would just trade that's how it worked back then well i know from from even the mid 90s you guys were completely involved in every aspect of your band and, and it's something that i i said on multiple podcasts that i've been a guest on and in talking about you guys Poda's life was the embodiment of a band that if you got their demo you got their demo from Coldest Life. You could write them a letter. You could order it. Um, I tell a story about when the first time I came with the story at the St. Andrews Hall, we tried to buy, I think it was like four or five hoodies from Dougie. And he's like, who are you selling these to? <laughs> we're like, what do you mean? He's like, <laughs> and we're like, nah, it's just for us, man. We just saw the hoods with hoodies. We want them. You guys, right, always, right. You, guys you guys, really had your own hand from the very outset in your direction, where I think some bands – we're trying to seek out these managers and these agents and these labels. And um, I wonder where do you, where did that come from for you guys? The whole DIY spirit that you guys would carry throughout your career. We, we just wanted to do our thing. You know, we weren't trying to do anything, but be us. Uh, we, we were 100% DIY. There had been offers on the table and people trying to, you know what I mean? Get us on board, but we didn't, we didn't want it. We just wanted to do what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. We wanted to be in control of, of what we did and what we didn't do. And uh, it was rough, man. Sometimes I think that uh, it was too much because it was a job. It was a full-time job. You know, we would, uh, there wasn't tour support. There wasn't recording budgets. You know, we didn't have graphics designers, you know, making shirts. We did all that shit from the tattoo artists that, that we know they would, they would make a design we would take that design to the screen shop and we would get it printed and we would sell them out of trunks and out of boxes and it shows. And we had our own distro. We, we booked our own tours. Uh, yeah, we, we did it our way because we wanted it done our way. You know, a lot of people think that you have to have a label 
you have to have a manager and you have to do this and do that. You don't, you can do it on your own, but it's a job. You got to be willing to, you know, pay what it costs. In the, in the Ron years, were you guys able to start opening for metal stuff that was coming through? Was it was cold as life a band that did do support if there was a, if there was like a big tour and a promoter or were you guys in Detroit solely just doing the hardcore thing? No, we did. We did some metal shows. Yeah, we did some metal shows. I want to say, uh, oh God, uh, uh, Malevolent Creation. We played at the ISIS one year. Uh, um, not a bunch of them, but and, and you know, the years are kind of blurry. But uh, yeah, we did some metal shows. How was the mix between the Detroit hardcore world and the and the metal of that time? Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. People stay, like I said, man, people were always kind of, you know, on edge. And especially when we would start, shit would go fucking bonkers, Joe. And there would be fights and the, the house lights would go on and there would be an ear on the floor. <laughs> so, you know, people were kind of on edge, you know what I mean? But uh, as far as the bands go, we would get along fine, you know, but the crowd sometimes didn't, didn't vibe so well. Well, I feel like that was a huge um hindrance not just for pulled as i would detroit but just hardcore in general as metal started i mean there was the one tour with af and stick of it all played with some death metal bands and even then there was some crazy shit it seemed like both scenes were too crazy to kind of link together without like the, the venues having those kind of problems and so i wonder when like let's say there was there there had to be some hardcore bands that were still coming through on tours in Detroit, were you playing with them at like beyond AF or was this solely like the band like you? Like were people who beyond like our kind of hardcore it like knew who you guys were at that time, like in 91, 92? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, a lot of that's a blur. And for me to name specific shows, it'd be hard for me to do, but yeah, it was it it went beyond AF for sure. You know, we were uh we were opening, we were direct support for a lot of bands that would come through. But, you know, we had a reputation, too, that a lot of venues started backing away from. They, If they would allow us to play, there'd be extra security and fucking strings attached. And, you know, we would be getting uh, the rundown before the show. If there's any fucking problems, you know, you're never playing again. And you know what I mean? So, uh, but, yeah, we, we, we played a lot of different shows in, in the city. Yeah, I, I remember you specifically telling me that because I was complaining about what punishment was going through like man we used to get stood up and told listen one fucking thing's happened we're never booking you guys again and i so i just wanted you to kind of like retell that because i think it's funny it's like fuck man you can't even and that was like 10 years before we were doing that you know yeah 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 and the joke i i mean there was times where a venue would hire like all these like these bikers right and we were little kids man we were a little fucking wolf pack right so, so we would size them up and they'd be, they'd be sizing us up and fucking one night, Jay way, we got into it with this, this security team and Jay way, we got into it in the club and it, and it was working its way out. And the majority of us were outside. Maybe I think all of us were outside and Jay way had this big F three fifty van and he blasted the back end right up to the door. So they couldn't get out. And we finished <laughs> it in the parking lot. It was like some straight, gangster move man and it wasn't it wasn't like choreographed it wasn't talked about it was just something that, that happened that quick so these these bouncers and these security teams they and this management of these venues 
they didn't want a lot to do with Cold as Life. And unless a bigger band that was coming through wanted us as direct support, they really didn't want to touch us because they knew it was going to be some kind of problem. Yeah, I, I you didn't tell me that story, but you basically alliterated to that point where like unless you had a link up with the band at some point, it was harder for Coda's life to get on these support shows because of the crowd. But also, I, I, I have always had a weird disdain for the biker image from the security aspect of hardcore because it's like, mm-hmm. man, we police, like you said, we police our own. And then yeah. you take a bunch of dudes that want to puff their chest out and do that shit. Mm-hmm. And we got our own pride and we got our own boys. We're not going to sit there and let them push us around, you know? Right. And they don't get it anyway. They don't get our community. They don't get what we're about. You know what I mean? They see these fucking kids thrashing around and going nuts and they 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 consider hostile or something. They don't get it. So, yeah, they're like you said, they're chest, you know, puffing and beating their chest and they want something to go off so that they can flex. But I, I think a scene just like the public in itself and not outside of the hardcore community, people generally police their own communities, man. It's not the police that keep people safe. It's each other that watch out for each other and look out for each other. I know that firsthand, the neighborhood that we grew up in, only certain people really called the cops because half the time when the cops came in, it wasn't to do the right thing for people. It was to fucking fuck with the people, you know, and I could, and right. And, and that's just a that's just a thing that happened. A street fight would happen. The cops would come. They weren't being like, hey, calm down. They're fucking hitting people and shit. And it would just make the situations worse. Yeah, they escalate, man. They need they need some training and de-escalation, man. They want to take it to 100 when it's when it doesn't need to be. Hey, hey there was a there was a movie. Oh, fuck, I forget what it was called. But there was a, a line in this movie where this guy was talking about the cops. He's like, I don't hate them but I sure seem to feel better when they're not around. That's, that's exactly how I feel, man. I feel better when the cops aren't around. Well, especially, you know, in the, in the way that we look at our community and the way that we look at shows, like you need security to do certain things and you need cops to do certain things. But I feel like the impression given to them is that they have control over all of it. And so it's like, when you have multiple security people, you have cops at our venues, you're going to have more problems and pushback from us because we're feeling bottled in. But if you kind of let us do what we need to do, things have never gotten completely out of control. I've never seen a show get completely out of control that didn't have security or cops or both instigating once things started getting what they considered out of control when we knew it was just like, this is our day. This is, our, this is, this is how we roll with shit. Next thing you know, it becomes... You know, security plus cops versus the venue, and I we right. and I grew up I re- I grew up in those situations where it's like I guess it's all of us for you guys, and you know, it's it's so I'm glad in some way that I got to be raised in that kind of hardcore world to see that, you know, especially in the times we're dealing with now, you see that we don't need this kind of thing. Now, you guys have always had a, um, it's it's. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, it called a cosplay when people wear costumes that look like something. There's an entire cosplay of the Coda's Life imagery that comes from generations well after you guys were done playing. But the culture of Detroit, and I, and I spoke on this on that Terror Zone podcast and others, you guys are really like not eye for an eye in the biblical sense, but you guys are also like pay respect to people that give you respect. Like 
you put us up in your home. You gave us shows, you know, like you gave us love. That's what brought Cold as Life out of Detroit. And I think that when people see the pictures and the pit bulls, they only see like all these guys look at they look scary. They don't know that like these are your homeboys. These are guys you grew up with. These are you guys are stood with. These are guys you get buried your friends with. Um, before we get into the mid 90s and all the stuff that would come later, when did all the tattoo boys and that Detroit hardcore really start just becoming around the Cold as Life band? Uh, so a lot of those original tattoo boys have been friends of mine for a lot of years. Their crew started getting bigger. Our crew started getting bigger. And when we were always just pals, you know, uh, I'm a tattoo boy, but I'm also CTYC. Um, we don't fly the same flag, but we're all brothers. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, beast, I've been involved with hate Inc on and off over the years. Uh, he's a tattoo boy. Uh, but he's also CTYC. You know what I mean? We, yeah. we're, we're just a bunch of dudes that grew kind of grew up together and, and, uh, and watched out for each other and kind of, you know, stood together. And what was the, uh, the origin of the CTYC name? Was it something who came up with it? Were you guys having graffiti dudes? Like give us the origin uh, of that. The name we itself. were, we were, we, we were actually in a fight, man. There was a big old uh, fight at that club Blondie's that I told you about one foot stage where I saw Slayer great shows at that place. But, uh, but we were fighting and I think it was some, uh, some, some skinheads and Ron, as we were fighting was screaming colder than you crew, colder than you crew, as we were fighting these guys. <laughs> and it, and then Dougie said, yeah, CTYC. And it just stuck, man. It was probably late eighties, early nineties. So we just started rocking the CTYC. I feel like if you're in the crew culture of hardcore, you'll understand that. And I think a lot of kids, well, because of the Instagram and internet, they see it, but they don't understand. Like, it's not just something to attack somebody else with it, but this is an identifying thing that you and all your, and all of our homeboys think about. Like, yo, these are boys. These are our boys. And like you said, the tattoo boys, they're their own thing, but they're also our people. And when you're in yep. cities, Philly's like this, New York's like this, Pennsylvania's like this there is times when you have two crews that are their own thing, but we're all still boys. And I always got that vibe when we would go to Detroit, you'd see TBT, you'd see TTYC stuff, but you never saw static between the two because it was all still Detroit, you know, bro. You're my people, man. Yeah. Boss, Boston, Philly, New York. You got, you guys are my people too, man. We, you got, we all have our separate thing going on, but we're brothers. No, I absolutely, I, I, I relate. And I think that the weird thing is, as we get older, we realize some of the letters may change, but we're all so much fucking similar. You know, it's like, it really does become like us versus everybody else because they can't relate to what we're about sometimes, you know? Right, right. Now, that, before, that goes to that real, recognizing real, man, real yeah. respect, you know? Now, um, it would be impossible to have a conversation about the next stage without talking about Ron in general and what was going on with Detroit at the time. Now, obviously hardcore people are, and hardcore stories are usually about bands and they're about my next record and tours, but like you guys were really city people and you guys were into some city shit. Guys said different things. And I don't think that there's that many people like a Ron Barger who, you know, it's taken from and there's like a, a myth around them. And I remember even the CD that would come out for Borderland Hard, there was like 
a 1-800 number for his killer. Do you have, um, let, give us the rundown. It's not just like what Ron was about at that time, but what was going on with you guys at the time and what led up to his actual uh, death. Um, we were making music. Uh, you know, I had, had a young kid, Ron had a young kid. Uh, you know, we were doing our best to, to make it, you know what I mean? To survive. Uh, Ron was living at 94 in Livernois, which is a uh, kind of border Southwest side of Detroit and his roommate, uh, the one that's wanted for his murder, uh, was his, was his roommate. Anyway, uh, Ron had told me that uh, that he was nervous about some kind of incident that happened at this payphone that these uh, these dudes were slinging dope at. There wasn't a lot of cell phones back then, you know, and people were still using payphones. Well, there was some kind of incident at the payphone. Ron told me he was nervous about because his roommate had gotten into some dudes that were slinging dope. And uh, a couple of days later, you know, we got the phone call that Ron was killed um, and that rich his roommate was the one that had supposedly done it uh now i don't know how you bond out on a murder charge but dude made bond somehow and he's been gone ever since there's uh there's some people that have said that uh that uh there's a club owner and a promoter here in detroit who's uh kin to to rich that uh that they got him on some property up north somewhere that he doesn't leave for anything that his people bring him groceries and pay the bills and he never leaves. But I don't know if that's true or not true, but you know, uh, I, you know, you, there's some questions when somebody dies, that will never get answered. You know what I mean? There's, uh, you know, there's rumors, there's, you know, instinct or, you know, but who knows, Joe, he, he, I'll never say somebody deserves to catch three behind the ear while you're in bed, but there's people that live their lives in a way that, you know, it's reasonably expected for something bad to happen. Ron yeah. was one of them guys, you know, he, okay. uh, he, people were afraid of him, man. You know, he, uh, if he loved you, he would stand with you through anything wrong or right. He would stand with you. But if, if there was a problem, he was your worst enemy. So people are afraid of people like that, you know, and nine times out of 10 or more often than not, when somebody's scared, they're going to do something like that. No, exactly. They're not going to, it's not going to be out on front street. It's going to be sneaking up like that. And a polarizing figure who has the kind of charisma that Ron had and the ability to like be the person he needed to be, to be in cold his life. And the guy in the hardcore scene, but also has that dark side. You're definitely going to see a chance for a lot of the types of Ron's to end up like this. And I know quite a few people like that, you know, that yeah. whatever they did, whatever he did or whatever, someone was scared about what he could do. They took him off the map like that. Now, what did that yeah. do? What did that do for Jeffrey Gunnels? What did, where did you take your life after he passed? Like, what was your thoughts? What, like, what, like, you know, what was going on in your head when all that went down? Well, immediately when that happened, I was worried about his little girl. She was not even two years old. Uh, you know, all of a sudden without a father and me being a father at the time, having a, a young child, I wanted to help, you know, and I did my best to help, help with that. Um, you know, cold as life took a little break. You know, we, we still wanted to make music. We tried, you know, finding a singer, but we couldn't. Um, so I started singing, 
uh, you know, we just put one foot in front of the other and just kept, kept walking it out. <clears throat> now, um, there's always the famous CTYC sung uh, in the Madball record. Yeah. And when you guys heard that, what'd that do for you guys? I, I was flattered. You know, you know, Fred, I remember Freddie when Freddie was the little fucking kid, dude, playing video games and fucking pissed at Roger and all his friends for coming around and fucking his video game time up. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They called him Madball because he was bouncing off the fucking walls all the time. But uh, uh, it, I was flattered, man. You know, Madball and us, we clicked immediately, man. We were brothers from the get. Um, but, yeah, I, I was flattered when they did that. And then you guys returned to favor on board the land hard. <laughs> you know, and that was a, a sign of love and respect. Now, when you, got, when you decided to take the mic – one of the things I try to tell kids who love Coda's life is like, how crazy are the shows? I'm like, well, one of the craziest things about Coda's life was you were one of the few bands that didn't have that front man to hold the mic out. So there was, you guys were kind of already off-putting, just not as people, but just like the ideology and the imagery is like, oh shit, this is Coda's life. But then the fact that there was no jumping on top of Jeff and taking the mic was kind of like another like, oh shit, this is only about Machin, you know? <laughs> I listen, man. I I never wanted to be a singer, bro. I liked playing guitar, man. But you know, we did what we had to do. You know what I mean? But uh, Detroit has always had its own thing. You know, there's the East Coast, there's the West Coast, and and there's sounds that you know accor accordingly, right? But Detroit was in the middle. We had it was like I don't know. We weren't East Coast. We weren't West Coast. It was it was Midwest. But then Detroit out of the Midwest still had their own little thing going on. Now, I, I feel like if you listen to the Born to Land Hard, there's still a deep connection to the early stages of Colder's Life, and there's songs that came with you that Ron sang on, but you guys really metallicized some of it, but like just the old track, especially like Where Are You Going, that still has that raw punk, almost English oi influence into it. And it was one of the few things in the 90s where you saw it, where so many bands were starting to just write songs to have one heavy breakdown. You guys were right. still playing metallic. You're still playing fast. And the breakdown was sometimes still that very old school. This is the fast part. This is like the groove part. There wasn't like a traditional breakdown at that stage. And that was something that was really special about Cold as Life's music specifically. Well, I remember that time period, man, everybody was doing the chugga, you know, the, like you said, the, the, the one token breakdown where people would go fucking crazy. And, uh, and, and that was, that was their, their songwriting, uh, style, but, but yeah, we, we, uh, we wanted to do what we wanted to do and there was hooks and breakdowns, but they were our own little hooks and breakdowns. You know what I mean? You now, know, a, a big band that influenced us coming up and you could probably hear it in, some of the coldest life material was discharge. You know, they had, they had, it was that fast raw. Uh, they weren't the typical hardcore chugga chugga, you know, breakdown part. They did their thing, but they had some fucking great breakdowns, but you would miss it if you weren't, you know what I mean? Listening. They weren't your Not, atypical breakdowns. Yeah, no, they, they definitely had an influence that actually is thinking about, not only Coda's life when you were in the band, but just the way that your vocal patterns began. Did you find it 
that it, you wrote the way you could sing as you were playing? Like yeah, as you were playing? I, I, I had to. I had to. <laughs> so what, what I'm getting at is that there was a different approach to your lyrics as a pattern, which kind of gave Coda's Life a really interesting sound. And I'd seen you guys, first time I saw you was at CC's. And it was like this thing where here's a guy. I, I didn't know that you were the dude that just sang. I thought, oh, yeah, this guy. I'm like, all right, this guy's playing and singing, which is very a metallic thing. But it really stuck out to me how much the whole band wasn't like, you know, you've seen hardcore bands. I mean, there was the big bands that would do full tours, but a lot of the bands in the 90s were kind of half-assed and would fuck shit up. But Cold as Life came out very fucking serious. And you guys were kind of like syncopated together. Like you guys moved together, you know, like, and especially when you guys got Gook in the band, he had his like things he was doing. You guys had a presentation that was like all inspiring at that time against a lot of the more East Coast sounds. Right on. Well, we were just trying to do our thing, but now um again, something that young kids who are listening will crack up about. Holder's Life did the thing that not a lot of East Coast bands did. And you kind of early on basically told Rick to life to take a hike. Like don't fucking get our tapes. We don't want you fucking selling them. And you had to get, and I said this earlier, you had to get the Coldest Life tape from the band. You had to get the Coldest Life CD from the band. You had to get those t-shirts. There was no secondary outlet. Like it came from Coldest Life. So when the hoods came through, I'm telling you it's summer and they had four fucking Coldest Life hoodies. And we're like, where the fuck did you guys get them? You know? And then when we went to Detroit, we had to get them. What was the, what was the reason that you guys kept, was it just from being back then, just being so into your band that you didn't want like a Rick to life? Like what was the, the, the cadence to kind of keep it all in-house the way you had it? Uh, I, I don't know if at the time it was anything really against uh, Rick, but again, I think that we just wanted control of where our stuff went and how it went. And uh, you know, the, Roy for one, he wanted uh he's not he's not sore at rick at all for doing some of the things he did because rick had a reputation of fucking making tapes and, and bootlegging them um and he did it to us uh, you know i i don't carry any ill will against the guy i heard he lost his fucking mind nowadays but uh he was he was he was making tapes and selling them and just keeping the cash. Now Roy looks at it as, you know, he opened some doors for us. I looked at it as that's some dirty ass shit. Uh, especially when there was no money involved, there was no tour support involved and everything we did came out of our own pockets and we ate with it. Uh, but you know, I, I don't care for the dude. I think he's a fucking clown. I always have. And that's about it with him. Well, I feel like, that is a, the general question, and and, I, and we spoke on both hands. On one hand, you don't have control of how much he's selling, so you don't know the tapes he, and where he's selling them to Europe and Japan. But some of the bands that eventually would get big on the East Coast, the argument could be made on their behest. Well, if he hadn't been selling the shit, would you have even got it? But then again, I have friends who bought a Hatebreed demo, and it was a totally different demo because he was bootlegging so much shit. You wouldn't even get he the real the shit. He did the same thing with us, man. They'd have, there'd be a fucking Barry Manilow tape and a fucking Coldest Light cassette cover. He he, that's what he did. But and and that argument is legit too. I mean, we got a call to go tour Europe, and I believe ninety nine. We wouldn't have got that call if Rick wasn't out bootlegging shit. But at the same time, I don't know. You know what I mean? I wasn't. 
I wasn't really looking to go to Europe. You know what I mean? It was something that just happened, but it wouldn't have happened without Healy fucking being a dirtbag. So I, there's an argument to be made. One of the things I find interesting is that you guys are all dudes that would just get in a van and go. And I remember yeah. hearing stories where like something like Johnny Mace, one of the guys in the van one time. And like, it, sure. it seemed like there was always crazy shit because you guys had to make that East eastbound drive across Ohio into Pennsylvania. And there was a lot of hours on the road where you guys were at each other's neck. What was it sure. like? What was it like in the late nineties when you guys were trying to make it out on the East coast for these trips and you guys had to work all goddamn week and then get in a van and hustle a couple 10 hour, 12 hour drives. It, it, it was tough, man. There's a lot of shit that happened in them vans, man. <laughs> hey, there was some mace and some brass knuckle play and there was there was a lot of stuff that happened in the vans dude yeah. yeah i remember i remember you guys coming out to sea season like 1998 and no one wanted to talk to each other like fuck this motherfucker and i'm like having like oh this dickhead fucking mace one of the fuck and i'm like you guys mace each other in the van what the fuck yeah i remember johnny johnny took a box cutter to roy's hand on a tour one time and cut a thumb in the palm of his hand and he squished a bunch of bacitration on it and duct tape it and played like this. Jesus <laughs> yeah, it was, Christ. it was, it was pretty wild back then, man. Yeah, it was wild. Also, you guys had Dougie, which now isn't a big deal, but Dougie selling merch and being like one of the most, uh, to me, he was one of the first people in hardcore that I can remember had like a giant face tattoo. But he's selling your merch, and it was kind of like, oh, of course, Cold as Life's uh, merch guy has a giant biomech, biomech face tattoo. And yeah, but, yeah. but the other thing about it is, we talk about the other side is Cold as Life. You were magnanimous with supporting all the East Coast bands and to deal with you guys because we sold merch next to Dougie so many times. You know, it was a great thing with Disoria and um, Cold as Life would play, and you guys were always supportive. And it's not like this. We could talk about the brass knuckle with the maze is kind of like funny, but then you guys were always about the brotherhood amongst bands, you know, and eventually you guys would even help us out with punishment when we would come through to the point when we were playing shows, you guys, I mentioned it when you first started singing in the beginning of the declination period, you guys would make sure we would have gear sometimes because we would have like almost nothing, you know, and you guys are out with die cast all out war and God forbid. And you guys are like, all right, we'll help you fucking retards out, <laughs> you know? <laughs> hey there was people that helped us retards out so you know what i mean that's that's what we do for each other right now let's think about this what was the move initially to get you to just be on vocals uh well i felt i felt limited out earlier uh i had to uh style my vocals around my ability to play the guitar and sing what i was writing so i felt limited and uh I just felt like we were we were we were moving in that direction. I knew some good guitar players that uh, that wanted to do it, and I felt like it was a good move for us as a band. In hindsight, not so sure, but at the time, it felt right. Well, I felt like not only did the the look live change because it was like the first time someone could grab the mic and sing along with you, which I I remember the first time I seeing you play live like that. I'm like, holy fuck, he's got a you know, like it was it was totally different. And I, I wonder how did you feel the first time someone's grabbing you like, as you're fucking playing? Um, it felt good. I felt free, a lot freer. You know what I mean. But at the same time, at that point, that reputation that Coldest Life had, 
prevented a lot of pileups. You know what I mean? I think people were kind of still on the edge wondering, hey, what should I do and not do this? So on one hand, I think it was a good move and I felt uh, I had a little more freedom to write in ways that I hadn't been able to before. Um, For some of that pile up stuff to happen at shows and to pass the mic around a little bit. But at the same time, uh, you know, I'm still sure whether that they should be doing that or not. Now, at that stage, you guys started working on the declination record. Now, what are you looking back on this? How do you feel about the difference between Borderland Hard and Declination musically? Well, I think the material on Declination was good, but I think the recording was horrible. It was real bright and tinty. We were going through a lot of problems, uh, personal problems, and uh, amongst each other. Uh, some fucking ego shit going on and some pride shit going on, and there's definitely budget issues. And, uh, you know, at that point in time, I had, I want to say, four four kids at home that I had to provide for and protect. And, you know what I mean? They were relying on me and trusting me to make sure that, you know, everything was good. Uh, I couldn't put in as much time to the band as I'd like. So I started kind of giving seats and hats to other people. And it just kind of fucking went all over the place, man. Um, It's a little more at that point, cold as life had gotten to a, a point where, it demanded more attention and work uh, and I didn't have the time to give it. So I started putting some of the responsibilities in hands that uh, I shouldn't have. And things started falling apart around then. Now, as someone who was, uh, this is like when I was most actively uh, not only friends with you guys, but just like dealing with shows and shit with you guys. Uh, what you're alliterating to is that at the time when Jeff starts singing for hold his life and not playing guitar, him, uh, my sick would eventually join on drums. Big Dog would join the band, and Mike DeGook, or, or, or aka Mike Coles, who was also in Sworn Enemy and Ages of Man, took a really big hand in the administration of the band. I remember you eventually would get Ramona, who would later to go on the book shows. At the first time I met her, she had like a Ramona at ctyc.com email, and that's how we dealt. Like you had it, your first little bit of an agent, and it was like. On one hand, you guys are still, it's still in-house, but there was the first time all answers didn't go right to Jeff. You know, like you weren't the right. last say on things. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we were, like you said, we were all in-house. We had an office uh, on uh, Jefferson and we rehearsed there and all our merch was there. and We did our distro out of there. Um, but Ramona worked for us. And, uh, and, and yeah, that's when, um, you know, I started tired taking a step back only because I had so many other responsibilities to my family. And, uh, that's what happened. Yeah. I remember, um, I remember we were at your house and you're like, I'd have you stay over. I got four goddamn daughters in this house, man. I can't, you know, can't have no damn men. And, you know, and we were hanging out and there's always this weird, it was a bunch of the boys, your, your wife's there, we're all hanging out. And then it was like, uh, Ramona had these dudes who look like new metal guys. She's like, I think it'd be great if you guys are torn. And I remember the, the tattoo boys being like, what the fuck are these dudes <laughs> doing at the house? <laughs> and you right, guys, right. you're trying to be polite to Ramona, but she's like, no, it'd be great if you guys would do shows with these guys. And punishment, we're all younger. We're looking like, these guys can't play with cold. It's like, what the fuck? 
Ramona is really good at what she does. She, uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. An agent and a talent buyer in the city. And she's, she does, she books a ton of bands, get some great shows, always make sure they're paid and taken care of. But she wanted, uh, because she was working for us, she wanted our fan base to grow. And that was some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. Uh, she wanted more people at the show. She wanted us to get paid better. She wanted things to go in a direction like that. And I think that that's what she was doing when she said things like that. She just wanted uh, to, to for things to get bigger. Now, Ramona um, would eventually, uh, years later, be the main uh, talent buyer in a lot of venues. And also, she was booking Trapped Under Ice. And yeah. from a promoter point of view, she was always great to work with. We had a really good relationship. And it stemmed back from her time working with Cold as Life, you know, um, and, and our relationship. I said in the Terrorism podcast, and I'm so glad that you you brought up your office. Um, there was a WTO riot, so we couldn't play Windsor, and it was Big Dog who was like, and uh, Duke who went up to the Ypsilanti show we played, and they're like, "Why don't you just play at our place?" I'm like, "What do you mean play at our place?" Like, so we <laughs> we we played on your gear in front of a bunch of your homeboys instead of having a show because our show got canceled. And to this day, I remember Damien being like. Dude, we're about to play in like Cold of Life headquarters for Cold of Life. And I was like, this is either gonna be the coolest show of our lives or the weirdest show of our lives, but that's the kind <laughs> of Cold as Life shit. And I remember you guys had a room with an actual map, and that's what I said in a podcast. You guys had a fucking map, like where you guys play. And it was like I remember us driving home being like, yo, remember when Cold as Life had a map on their wall? Like, this is our like our domination map. And it was fucking it was cool to see you guys <laughs> like this. You guys were on some other shit, and I was like I remember us driving home and like, fuck, man, Cold of Life has their own like gang headquarters slash office. You had all your merch perfect. It was it was the most professional DIY shit I seen. And that was like 20 years ago. <laughs> hey, it all went to shit, bro. <laughs> well, so that's kind of what I wanted to get to in, in, in a roundabout way. In the 90s, you guys would make very organized patterns to come to the East. And I know you guys eventually would go to Europe. Right at the turn of 2000, you guys started playing out here a lot more. And you got like there was a fire, but I remember you, me, and you talking. And you're like, dude, I'm not making the kind of money I could be making just working every goddamn day. And I got a family. Uh, kind of like walk us through the reasons why you guys started playing more and kind of what happened to the band in the process and like what happened to you because of it. Well, I mean, Coldest Life was something that, uh, you know, had been a huge part of my life for two decades at that point ish and uh it was not something i wanted to let go of but there in me and the husband in me wanted to fulfill my responsibilities as such um so i was torn you know uh there was times called his life made a, a ton of money you know doing our own merch and our own cds and uh the guarantees from a tour but it wasn't steady and consistent enough you know you couldn't bank on it um, so I was torn, you know, uh, there were some things going on cold as life where, uh, it, it looked like it might go to next. I was still hanging on to it, but you know, it didn't, it didn't come about like, uh, like we thought, or, you know, maybe, maybe the potential had it had, uh, so eventually, like I said, I had to kind of back away from a lot of the responsibilities and, uh, quarterbacking the ball to, uh, to provide for my family. And it, and, it, and it ended up, uh, you know, I kind of dropped the ball on both. 
Um, there were some other people involved that Ramona not included. She did a great job for us, but some of the other people that had their hands on, um, on cold as life, you know, dropped the ball and, uh, and treated it, um, without the respect that it deserved or the responsibility that it deserved. Um, I remember Ramona calling me one day during those years and telling, asking me if I had been to the office and I told her no. Um, so I went over there and every bit of merch, every CD, all of our consignment contracts, uh, all of the artwork and screens, uh, there was fucking guitars on the wall, dude, from dead homeboys that were all gone, dude. It looked like a bomb went off in the place. And that's when Gook and the big dog and Timmy decided to rob cold his life and fucking take all that shit and book to the East coast to do sworn enemy. So Gook was 16 years old when we got him in the band. And this is how, you know, putting the responsibilities and giving him the keys to the place. And you know what I mean? That's, that's what that got called his life right there. Well, I remember, Jake, I remember, Jake I remember specifically. Jake Locke gave me a guitar, bro, before he died. Damn. Jake Locke was my, my, my friend, my, my brother. And I had a guitar. It was a, it was a Gibson hanging on the wall from him. And even that fucking guitar was gone. You know what I mean? So there's a lot, a lot to that story, man. But in a nutshell, that's how that went down. And that's when I started doing Ramallah. So uh, for those listening, this is something that would eventually pop up later on. Um, there was eventually a Coda's Life tour without Jeff. And I was the only East Coast promoter that said no to the tour. And at the time, because of my space, Jeff had written one bulletin. This is probably the only time I've ever heard him say the words. I already read his words on a MySpace bulletin where he laid all this out. So Coda's Life, as we talked about, had their own office, and they did everything with DIY. Mike, who would eventually be in Sworn Enemy, kind of created a mutiny, and not only left with two, uh, three of the members of Coda's Life, but stole everything out of this. And uh, Craig Holloway, who was a member of Coda's Life, who is very well known for New York hardcore art. He had some crazy artwork. I remember you telling me, dude, he stole a guitar from Jake, you know, that Jake gave me and Jake passed away. So the end of Coda's life was essentially not unlike the, the Ronnie Barger shit. Like somebody came in the middle of the night and just took this whole thing away. And I, and I remember big dog calling me, but, but still Coda's life. I said, dude, Jeff, Jeff to me is Coda's life. If this is something you guys pull off, good for you, but I can't in good faith do this. And I remember you writing on the, and it's so crazy because you're, you were not even an internet person in the my stage. They kind of like, I'll remember who my friends were that stood by this. And I remember my friends who said, oh, fuck Jeff, we're going to do this cold as life shit, shit anyway. And soon after that, we would end up being on a tour together when you're in Ramallah and I'm in Shattered Realm when we talked about that a little bit. Yeah, man. There's there's very few people, you know, people are loyal only as long as their needs are being met, right? It's, or they're not being met, they're no longer loyal. So respect, bro. There's not a lot of people that can stand there and say the same thing. Not a lot at all, man. I went to prison when they did that. I was gone yeah. and and they did that. Um, you know, I'm not mad at Roy. You know, Roy, Roy's the kind of guy, man, that that does what he feels is right. There's no maliciousness behind it. There's no ill intent behind it. 
he did what he thought was right. I'm not mad at him about it, but uh, Calder's life has been cheapened over the years by things like that. Things like what the gook did. Uh, you know, and, uh, I wish it wasn't so, but it's, um, it's all awesome. I feel like specifically at that time, I feel in looking back at Coda's life, you were stuck between trying to push a band because you saw there was value. I mean, I'd seen as Coda's life in the nineties and because you guys were more organized about when you guys come out, the shows were different and you made sure you went and traveled to see all the Coda's life shows. Cause you know, you're playing three or four shows. You might not see them for another eight months and you guys, I mean, there's a part of me like his punishment with like super fucking cold as life fans. We had to play with you guys a lot at that time period. You guys were playing with diecast and God forbid and a lot war. And I remember them bands had to hold their own against you guys at that point. Like you guys were really a powerhouse and I did feel what you said. There was a chance like a moment where like, dude, cold as life could turn like that could, that could become something, you know, like something beyond just a band that comes from Detroit and plays but I remember having private conversations where you're like, dude, I, you know, I got a family, I got a family. And then we did the Ramallah tour and you're kind of like, you know, this will be fun. I get to do something different. And I remember there was a, almost like a more of a chill vibe for you because you weren't dealing with all the things that Colder's life has going on. Right. And right. so, and, and Ramallah it's so Rob is a, a musical genius, man. In in my opinion, very few guys can, articulate and compose music the way this guy can he you know very few writers have the ability to connect with their listeners like rob does like paulie bear does um rob was one of those guys and uh when he asked me to do ramallah he had that five song ep that but a whimper ep and i listened to it and i was sold immediately from the get-go potential to do some big things some some things that cold as life would never be able to do just sonically you know um so I, I was I was on, but it, you're right. It was a more of a chill vibe because all I had to do was play guitar. You know, I didn't have to get designs together and get budgets together and book tours. And, you know, so that was something I was interested in from the get go. But then Ramallah had its own issues, you know, but. Well, I feel like that's a big part of the music world that you've just unfortunately, everything you do comes with either like a, a dark figure, whether it's ron and his like street life whether it's rob and his demons you know and i don't know if it's for better or worse because i don't know what kind of i don't know what kind of life you would have if you were just a guitar guy like would you be more chill and relaxed <laughs> you know like instead of being who you are now like i don't know but hey, you know it all it all everything you know uh leads up to who you are the good the bad the ugly man you know tragedy loss you know triumph victory all of it man it has a hand in who you become so well like, that's kind of where i was gonna that's why i was leading i'm glad you thought that way there was things that you were involved with will work now this whole time we've been talking you're out in the the iron woods of michigan cutting down trees and shit at this time right you're like you're still very heavily involved in work when you're not torn right yeah, yeah, I've always been a, a, a tradesman, a tree guy. Yep. Can you uh, can you go through like what got you into that trade, how you learned it, and like how you balanced doing that kind of work with being Jeff from Cold as Life? 
Uh, I mean, I guess like anybody else that's in a, in a, a, a band that's not making a ton of money, they got to have a job too. Uh, Jim Davey, he was a guitar player and without warning, he was a line clearance tree trimmer. He's, he's been in that trade since we were teenagers and he turned me onto that work and it's, uh, it's hard work, but it pays real well. So I would do that. And then, uh, and then tour at the same time. And, and a lot of times it's seasonal, not with the line clearance side, but tree work in general is seasonal. So it allowed me to work, you know, and then, and then tour. And we most of our tours were in the winter, you know, when, when tree work wasn't so, but uh, he's the one that turned me on to the work and uh, it's just been on since. Now, what was going on with you in the stage where right up to your arrest? What was going on with that, and how does that relate to your work? Ah, uh, Joe. Uh, so, 2007, uh, I'm about 70 foot in a tree, and uh, and I hit my wrist with a with a chainsaw, and I blew through my ligaments and tendons into my arteries. Uh, I almost bled out in the tree. I get to the hospital; they do some uh, reconstructive surgery, uh, reattach my tendons. I'm late. I still got this family to support. Um, prescribed really heavy opiate based pain meds. Uh, for anybody that knows me, I've always been against hard drugs. You know, I've smoked and I've drank some beers most of my life, but you know, I've always been against hard drugs. I get, uh, all these real heavy opiate based pain meds and, uh, embarrassingly, man, it spiraled into, into something altogether different, man. I, uh, uh, I, I started doing dope, uh, always hated it, had many examples of, uh, reasons why to not, you know what I mean? Go that route. Many guys, many friends in the ground from it. Um, I knew better, but, uh, but that transition just seemed seamless, man. And it was something that happened. I'm still embarrassed about it, but that's what eventually led me to prison. I went from, you know, a musician, a tradesman, a husband, a father, um, to somebody that uh, that had his hand in a robbery and went to prison and spent seven plus years behind bars. Yeah, I, I remember. In fact, you and I obviously most of Shadow Realm would smoke weed and shit, and we had stuff at Katie's Fasher. We had Death Warrants on our drink, but like most of the dudes in Ramallah were pretty. You know, you and Rob smoked cigarettes, you know, but it would be all of us hanging out and getting coffee together every day. We are kind of like more like the straight, you know, you're like, like I drink, I drink, you know, here and there. I smoke cigarettes, you know, we drink coffee and Rob was going through his own being, trying to be clean. And you were like somebody really, you know, like a, like a, someone he can like, you know, lean on. And I remember being told the details of how you got hurt and the opioid opiates. And I was like, not like fuck this guy, but I felt sad because I remember how I remember having conversations weekly on that fucking summer tour talking about like, you know, like heroin and what it did to our neighborhoods, what it did to our families. So yeah. you were, you were sentenced in June 4th, 2013, the armed robbery. And I know that you had spent most of your life was, aware was, of prisons, but like, it was, how May, did it, feel? it was May. Uh, it was May of uh, 13, but it was May. I caught, my, I caught my case in November of 2012. I went to prison May of 13. I, it took about six months to, to get the case over with. Now, what happened to your life from the time that you were arrested and to you were inside? Oh, man. 
you know, so I was sentenced 10 to 20 years, right. With a, a tail of 20 years, um, in the prison system, man, there's sometimes you don't know if you're going to make it, you know what I mean? Prison is, uh, volatile as everybody knows. Um, uh, you know, I had these young kids and, uh, having betrayed their trust so badly. Um, I was sick, Joe. Um, uh, I, I lost everything. I didn't, I talked to maybe a handful of people while I was in prison. Um, you know, I stuck to myself. I did my thing. I did everything. See, the thing is, man, when, when somebody loses their life is I think really when they come to realize how beautiful life is and how much they want to live, you know what I mean? Uh, shouldering the remorse and the regret and the shame for doing what I did and knowing that my kids were out there struggling the way they were struggling. Uh, it fucking literally broke my heart, man. Uh, <clears throat> so all those years in prison, uh, I made a decision, man, to wake up every day and look for the opportunities, man, to become the father, the man, the friend, the person that I always wanted to be, that I knew that I could be and should be. Um, so every day in prison, man, you know, uh, I, I was out of place in prison, bro. You know, I wasn't drinking, fucking smoking, fighting, stabbing. Um, I, I was reading books. I was working out. I was praying. I was meditating. I was doing everything to become everything to prepare myself for the life when those gates open. And, uh, I tell people all the time, man, that prison was the very worst thing that ever happened to me, but it was also the very, the very best thing that ever could have happened to me because, because now I have a, a gratitude, a strength, a drive, a perspective, uh, that I never had before, man. So, uh, I, I feel grateful for having, having gone through what I went through. When I, when I think about someone like you going to prison, obviously it's not like you're, um, naive to what would go on inside and you have plenty of your front homeboys in there. Did you think that being aware of the prison culture before you went in gave you the, uh, insight to kind of avoid some of the shit that was going to happen, especially because, at the time when you were arrested, were you still fighting or when you were about when you were sentenced and going in, were you still uh, addicted or you, you getting over that? No, I was, I was, uh, so when I got arrested in 2012 for it, uh, I spent about, I don't know, I'm going to say 40 days in Wayne County jail. And, uh, I ended up bonding out to fight this case. Um, but I was, I was clean for, I'm, I'm, it'll be nine years this come this November, uh, uh, I've had a couple drinks, you know what I mean? But as far as any kind of drugs go, I, I don't do drugs anymore. Um, when I got arrested, I, I did those 45 days in county. I got out, fought this case, but I was completely committed to never again touching any kind of fucking pharmaceutical or illicit street drug or any of that. That Life is too hard on it on its own, man. Why? You know what I mean? I don't have any time for it in my life. You know what I mean? And, and all those years I spent in prison would be, have been for nothing if I ever went back. You know what I mean? It fucking destroys communities and families. It takes dads from their kids. It puts people in the ground and there's fucking thousands of gravestones marking places of, of people that didn't wake up, that didn't stop. You know what I mean? People, for anybody to step in the ring with heroin, meth, cocaine, 
and think that they would fare any better than the millions that have tried it before. Fucking naive. Shit's I, the devil, bro. It's the devil. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I, I seen enough of it, dealt with enough of it as a child and saw it in my teens, you know, and, and I was like, I, I, I know that I can't do this. I know what it would be. You know, I find that did you, what were the things, were there anything outside from your former, you know, music life that, popped up in prison or were you in prison just focusing on yourself no no there's people i ran into man so uh there was a guy that ctyc was always beefing with right they fucking called him evil eric he is a brick shit house right i'm i'm in this last facility i'm at where i was tutoring that class and i'm in the weight pit and i catch this dude eyeballing me and i'm looking at him and I, instantly i recognize who it is i'm like oh fuck man there's going to be problems. This and Joe, when I say he's a brick shit house, this dude's probably two sixty, and he's and he's squatting like six hundred pounds all the way in the bucket. And I'm thinking, fuck. <laughs> and I know who it is. It, Donnie ended up cutting him one time, pro mag show in the at the Falcon Lounge in the city, and uh, so I I know there's issues, there's beef, but <clears throat> I ended up going to him later on that day or the next day and said, listen, man, uh, are we good? And he said, are we good? And he said, yeah, we're good. <laughs> I thought there was going to be issues, man. Yeah. There was like a, uh, another time I wrote, I wrote into a facility and, uh, there was this cat eyeballing me in, in, uh, do a facility. The first thing they do is shoot you through healthcare to make sure everything's all right. And I'm sitting in this room, packed room, bunch of fucking orange and blue uniforms. And this dude, and I'm thinking the same thing, you know what I mean? For where in prison, man, you, you know, a, a look, a gesture, a, a, even a silence, man. You, you know what I mean? Your head's on a swivel. You have to like, live like that. But I noticed this guy looking at me and uh, he asked me if my name was Jeff G and I'm doing that playback from way back. Like, oh shit. And uh, he ended up being a dude that hung out forever and ever coming to shows. And so that was, that was all right. But yeah, you know, here and there things came up, people I knew people, uh, people that heard of my band or knew my band or. I wonder, and I always think about the way that people look at prison as the people in hardcore, I feel sometimes project a different image of what they would do if they were in prison. And what you just said is the most important thing. It's a, it's, I, I, I am lucky that I was only in County. I never had to go upstate and it's exactly that someone says something weird or there's a silence. It's unsettling. And it's not this for all the songs and people that think this shit's cool. It's, it's the last place you ever want to end up, you know? Hey, it, it is the last place you want to end up, man. There's, I, there's I, things that there's things that human beings do to other human beings, man, that, you could only know if you've been inside prison, man. There's some fucking horrible monsters in this world, man. There's some horrible monsters in prison. Now, it's it's important because we talked about it before we started recording, but you brought it up. Um, there's a foundation called DTE Foundation. And the facility that you were involved in had a vocational village. And you got to be a part of this. And I, I wonder, not only could you talk about it, but... Do you feel that your involvement in this program helped get you ready for when you would get out? Like mentally, like I'm going to be back on the streets. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're considered a, a, 
a medium to long-term inmate in the system. They require you to go through a vocational trades program as part of a, a, a to reduce recidivism. Uh, so I got like a year left in my sentence and uh, all of a sudden these cops tell me to pack up that I'm riding out and uh, that I was going to do this vocational trade. So I sat down with this programs coordinator and told him I was already a tradesman and told him what I did. And I was trying to get out of going because I was at a facility that was halfway close to home. I was getting visits halfway regularly and I didn't want to go to this other facility. It was gravy there. So uh, I told them what I had done most of my life. <clears throat> and they told me about this upstart program that DTE was putting together at Parnell in Jackson and asked me if I wanted to tutor it. So reluctantly I did. And I ended up going and uh, yeah, it opened up a lot of doors for me, man. It opened up a lot of doors. <clears throat> yeah, so essentially, it was, uh, you were teaching people to cut trees for the power program or for the power company. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yep. Teaching guys, uh, to climb using the climb gear, arborist gear. Yep. So we're line clearance tree trimmers. We clear the voltage lines. We work around high voltages. We clear the, clear the trees off of them. So there's probably, uh, there's probably about 12 guys out here working right now, making about $30 and under depending where they are in their apprenticeship program. Cause it's a two and a half year apprenticeship. Uh, you know, the lower steps make a little less, but once you get to journeyman, you're making right around 30 bucks an hour, a little, a little south of 30 bucks an hour, but they get, they get a retirement accounts and, and healthcare. And there's a lot of guys that are making good use of this opportunity, man, out here working, you know, otherwise who knows what they Back on the do. streets, back right. on the streets. Right. I have friends who are out, out, um, the same kind of linemen, like, cause there's electrician. We have a lot of friends, electricians union, but the outside linemen, those guys have changed. Those chase storms all over this country. I have friends that have been in every part, and they, they know when storm season comes. It's a well-paying job, but it's insanely dangerous. Like you said, you're dealing around high voltage. You got to climb up. You have to wear a lot of PPE. And I think that I don't. I don't want to subscribe to a god, but I think things that we do in our past can come back to help us when we're in bad spots. And I feel like your experience kind of gave you that leverage to help you out by having this. And then. Um, you touched on having visits with your family. You were having visits with your family. You're getting ready to come out. And now you have this, 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 did this program help you get the job you have now? Or were you already lining your own work up? No. Well, I mean, I had plans to get back into the trade, but no, this program specifically and directly got me hired in as a DTE contractor. So yeah, it was, uh, solely responsible for the job that I have now. So when everybody gets on short time, they start thinking about what's next. How was your, did you have the opportunity in the time you were in to mend any fences with your relationships? Uh, how, how was that working out for you? Uh, it, it, you know, it's slow going, Joe, you know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the level of betrayal I showed my family is truly disgusting, man. You know, my, I was gone for most of my, my, younger kids lives and I, and it hurt them bad. Um, they know that I love them and I, and I, and, and, and we're making steps to, to kind of reconcile and, and put things in the past, but they're still hurt, man. You know, and it's, so a guy changes, right. You know, I did what I did and I, I truly changed to become the person I am now, 
but change comes from within. And those apologies and that reconciliation comes from the walk, not the words. So I'm walking it out. You know, I'm making sure they know that I'm here, that I'm available. I do my best. I'm, I reach out. Um, there's certain people that'll never forgive you. You know what I mean? Um, especially when you start doing the right thing, you know, even when it's inconvenient, even when, uh, when you're doing the right thing, there's certain people that are just going to hate on you just because you're doing the right thing. Uh, but it's a slow process, man. I was gone for, like I said, since 2012, I'm just getting out. I've only been out 10 months. Um, so it's going to take some time and some patience and they, they got to trust in me and in this situation. And, you know, there's a lot of people that come from that school of, uh, you know, once a junkie, always a junkie, you know what I mean? And nine times out of 10, that's true. There's, I think the percentile of people that truly separate themselves from that life is under 10%. Um, now I've not been a lifelong junkie or anything, but at the end of the day, man, I did what I did and I betrayed their trust and I, I, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to walk it out to make sure they trust me again one day. <clears throat> I feel like we're always, we're always cognizant of the drugs and we see the drug addicts, but you, you're kind of like you stepped in the middle of that hurricane, like in that cyclone, you know, and you got to feel what it is. It's easy to me to see you in that cyclone. I can't believe he walked into that, but it's a whole other thing to stand in the middle of it and get out. And then um, I've been guilty of being very apathetic just for the, I mean, where we grew up, where we grew up now is the centerpiece of open air drug sales. I think without being too conspiratorial, it's definitely going to benefit gentrification in the coming decades, but you right. just get, I get torn to not even want to look at it because of how out in the open it is. And that's right. I moved to a completely different part of the city just to get away from it. Cause it was an everyday thing, but you know, knowing the goodness in you and knowing people that have made not only small inroads, but amazing transformations. I don't believe that once a junkie is only a junkie in any regard. And I feel like, the pharmaceutical specifically has so much to pay for to bring people like yourself into these kind of situations. You know, like it wasn't like you were bored and shot fucking dope. You're trying to get help. And right. it, it feels, I feel like a lot of America has a story, not unlike yours, you know, with the exception that unfortunately you got involved in this armed robbery and you got kicked further down the path, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, Joe, those doctors, and I'm not saying this to diminish, you know, my own hand in the whole situation, right? I did what I did. You know, there was choices I made. But when I got hurt, those doctors were prescribing me fucking ridiculous amounts of opiates. Oh, here, try this, try this, try it. irresponsibly prescribing them. Now, again, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and blame anybody because I did what I did. But there, there was other hands involved and so I believe there's what people do and, but also why they do them. You know what I mean? The, what was the armed robbery? The why was the addiction part of it? Um, I, I, and like you said, man, I can't, you can't believe I stepped into that. I can't either, man. I, my whole life, I looked at neighborhoods the, like the one you just described. I've got an older brother that died two marches ago. He's a lifelong junkie. He did almost 30 years in prison because he would go he, in, installment plan. He would do four or five years, get out, re go back to the streets for almost 30 years. I had that example to look at as well as all the, all our friends, all, you know, them, I know them. Yep. there's a million guys we know in the ground, man, 
from OD, OD, murdered, crashed, burned, whatever, however, but they're in the ground. And I had all of those examples my whole life. But until you're in it, you know what I mean? Until your fucking head is so whacked on, on these pharmaceuticals, it was like a seamless transition to illicit drugs, man. It, it, it was like it was like taking one step with your left foot and another with your right foot. And then, and then there you are, you lose ability to see, uh, straight, you know, that judgment wall in your brain is so far broke down that I just, I, I, I had, I didn't have the ability to, to pull myself out of it, man. No, I, I feel like that's something that in perspective, people have to understand when someone's in the middle of it, they're not going to see their way out. And all we see is them lost. And that's where the apathy comes from. Yeah. Now, when you when you were released, the world had changed in a lot of ways. And I, I've only, I haven't been to Detroit since 2006. Actually, no, 2007 was the last time I was in Detroit. But I read the news and I think they're changing it somewhat. How did your world change when you get out, when you got out and you were actually, were you actually able to be free or did you have to go into like halfway houses and all that shit? Like, what was your transition? I paroled to, to my brother's house, man. Okay. So okay. It, right, at the end, right at the end of my sentence, bro, I caught COVID. COVID went crazy in the prisons, man, because it's such a filthy environment. And there's you're just on top of people. It just it exploded in prison. So I had it once in February and once in March, right when I was getting ready to leave. And uh, so when I got out, I still tested positive for like another 70 days. So I quarantined myself. I'm not in the city right now. I'm, I'm about an hour west of the city in a little community called Clark Lake at my brother's house. Um, so I've spent minimal time in the city. I've done some uh, some power outage work in the city a couple of times um, and just drove through it, picking up my kids and taking, taking them home. But uh, as far as the world changing, I don't know, because the world's been fucking closed since I've been out. Fair enough. Where was the um? Where is this? Where was the? Where was the beginning of you and Roy Lincoln back up? Was it in through letters or was when you got out? Uh, it was when I got out. Yeah. I. You know what's funny is I had written him a letter when I was in prison, probably the third or fourth or fifth year I was in, but never sent it. But when I got out, you know, I'm not a huge social media guy. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm a digital retard. So I don't I don't know about a lot of this stuff, but I ended up um, using some of these social media platforms to kind of reconnect with some people. And I reached out and uh, and we ended up having a conversation and now we get together, me, him and uh, Beast. Uh, we've been making some music and, you know, we're, we're good. We put the past behind us and we're working on some things. And so, yeah, but it was definitely after I got out. Yeah, we did a um, we did a Coda's life set in 2017 at a This Is Hardcore, and I had a conversation with him. First, it was with Jesse who was try who was singing it, and I was like, "Look, I'm the one who said no. I'm the one who said no when it was Beast and a totally different Coda's life. Like, why are we doing this one?" And he's like, "No, nah, man, like this is legit. Like, we're always involved." And it was like, "Okay, this isn't just like a half-assed, you know." I, I think in earnest. Really was trying to keep the name of the band alive and he knew that people were about it, but it definitely felt different. And I, and again, it, it, it was interesting because everybody who we had played shows with wasn't in the band, but there was an energy of kids just being excited to see Coda's life. And I remember all of us who had seen it said, I'm like, 
this is going to be crazy when Jeff comes back and gets to play and gets to see the amount of people that now love the band, you know, and I, the fucked up thing where if you guys stayed active, I don't know if the same amount of interest and mysteriousness would be around your band, but I'm very excited about the potential to see you see young people and your old friends enjoy your music again. And I'm really happy that you got the link up with Roy. Me too, man. He's been a, a, a lifelong friend. You know, our, our beef should have never happened to begin with, but it, I mean, it did, but I'm, I'm grateful that we're talking again. He's, he's been my, my friend since we've been teenagers, bro. Well, yeah, you guys came up before there was a cold as life when, you know, like before you guys were like dying to paint hardcore people. And I think when you have a friendship like that, it's almost weird if you haven't had fallings out and you hadn't had little problems, you know, but it's bigger that you walk, right. you, you're walking together now instead of being like, fuck this dude, you know? Yeah, I agree. Now looking into the prison system real quick, what do you think now that you've been in there, where where are the where are the failings that you think that should be immediately changed? Because obviously with um, COVID, there's a lot of talk about not only prison and prison abolition and all this stuff, but where where do you sit on a lot of the things that were talked about regarding prison systems and rec- recidivism? and how people don't get the chance to just come out of the street and not run right back into the same problems. Man, that's such a, a complex uh, system, right? And it's such a part of uh, economies and states. It's a, it's a cash cow, man. Um, it's full of, of people um, that come from poor neighborhoods that don't have the money to, to pay for lawyers and uh and defend themselves in court um so i'm not anti-prison joe right we we need them there's money there right but instead of it being a a first resort you know what i mean it should be the last um there's a a lot of people in prison good talented fucking people in prison man that um that did something fucked up right but they uh they blanket with statutes and MCLs uh, and use uh, past record variables, variables and offense variables to tal- calculate sentences, right? And they don't take mitigating circumstances into consideration, like families or state of mind or condition at the time of the crime. Um, it's it's real callous and it's by the letter of the law. Um, and, and I don't think it should be like that. Uh, again, I'm not anti-prison. We need them. Uh, there's a lot of people in there that I'd rather see in there than out there rubbing elbows with my kids or the people that I love and care about, but fucking people that commit crimes are people. And, um, and they deserve a little bit of compassion when they're being sentenced, maybe not compassion, but but reason man they they fucking throw people in prison they kick them around for sometimes decades at a time and then open the doors and expect something to be different they have some programs here and there right but prison isn't designed to change people the change comes from within right prison didn't change me it was it was my determination and my commitment to wake up every day and look in that mirror at all those little ugly dark fucking painful truths 
that changed me. It was that, that, that guilt and remorse that I've shouldered for all those years that changed me. That's what motivated me. That was the catalyst. But prison itself is not designed to change somebody. Prison will fucking kick you around. Like I said, and instead of coming out of prison, want to rejoin the world, you want to come out and fucking burn it down because you've had nothing but fucking torment and shame. And these cops that run these facilities and these counselors that run these facilities in the administration, they fucking put their boots on your neck and fucking suffer, suffocate you for the whole. It's, it'd be like parking a car with a bad alternator in a garage for 10 years and then opening the garage door up and pushing it out and expecting it to be fixed. It's, it doesn't work like that, man. Some of these programs they have help, but nine more times than not, you know, it's just a, a, a dog and pony show to, to get these federal dollars of these state dollars that they get for putting these t- programs together, but they really don't care about it. No, I couldn't agree more. I find that the prison system, whether it's Michigan or Pennsylvania, specifically, it's almost like if you're not from a good home and you don't have a place in society, we're already naturally going to be set aside from the person who's just going to go to work, have a family, buy the house, and just be a normal person. And so we do the things like fuck up. We write on walls. We get into fights. We get caught pissing outside. And they write these things about us, this little charge, that little charge, this little charge. And they write this story about us that says, this person has been this way his entire life and he is no good. But what has ever been good for us? What has ever, when when do they come in from the outset, they've institutionalized so many things, but low education, low prosper for um, any kind of future, you know, like, like you said, we're, we're already we're already destitute. We've got broken homes. I don't, most of my friends don't have two parents, you know, right. like we didn't grow up in that world. And then, so you fuck up, you don't have things. You're not rolling with four wheels on the road and our right. road ain't, it ain't straight. It's uphill. It's bumpy. You know, there's dead ends. And so these charges that you're talking about and these, these statutes, they're not made to get the person to the next stage. It's meant to punish the small and then all these small punishments, they say, this guy will never learn his lesson. No, you haven't learned your lesson that our kind of people that don't have everything are not going to be able to succeed in your little maze. So then they put you in a bigger maze. Now, I'm a union concrete, I'm a union concrete guy. I build a lot of projects. I'm doing a high rise for condos now. There is more of an impetus and a drive from the general contractor to go, go, go and get this done. So the person who's building the project doesn't lose money than any of the two prisons I worked on because they know it comes in the state and federal. And they're like, oh, well, you know, it takes a little longer because there's so much fucking money involved. And then we get in the, bureau- the whole bureaucratic process, you know, um, in Philly. I got arrested in 2006. I wasn't sentenced for three and a half years because I had a lawyer and he kept pushing and pushing and pushing back, you know, which was. Now, in hindsight, I'd rather just say what I said the next week. This is what it is and move on with my life. Right, but right. they take for years sometimes to get people to where they need to be at. And they and what you said to me just fucked me up so bad. They don't look at the – and you said it about mitigating circumstances. They don't look at psychology. They don't look – they only look to villainize us. And then when we're out, 
there's a piece of paper that can be nowadays with the internet can be tracked at any given time that tells us we can't do this. We're not allowed here. How are we supposed to be normal humans? And so like you said, who doesn't want to burn down a fucking system that actually feels like it was created almost entirely to put people like us in these boxes. Joe, it, it's more, you know, there's always that clear and obvious shit that sits on a table. There's all that stuff underneath the table too. That this the prison systems in this country <coughs> are embedded into the economy. They trade prison numbers and sentences on Wall Street. There's more to it than a lot of people know, man. But but again, I can't agree with you more, man. And it goes back to that. There's what people do, but there's why they do them. You know, people. This is right where we had the disconnect. And we decided to wrap it up for the day and start again on another day. So there might be some context lost, and I hope you understand that I did my best to keep the continuity of the conversation going. Thank you. Yeah, so we were talking about the the way that the prison system is specifically a cash cow to some degree and and a part and part of specific economies where the prisons are. And you were making a point that once you start getting into the kind of money that is made and profits are based upon prisons, you start looking into what people are really, you know, like what people are and why do they do the way they do. And I didn't know if that was in reference. Is that in reference to the fact that we are stuck in these poor societies so that we end up like, is it, is that what you're getting at? Or does it go deeper than that? Hey, Hey, you remember when, uh, when the, uh, the big three got bailed out by the federal government of uh, uh, maybe a decade ago. Yeah. It, when, when, they, when, when the politicians that were, were, were funding them or giving those, that money out, they, they, they coined the term too big to fail. Yes. It, it was for a reason. Cause it was such a large part of the economy and it's the same way with prisons in every state in our country. And, but when we were talking of, uh, our upbringings, our neighborhoods, our experiences, you know, and our opinions and our moral compass, they're all derivatives of those uh, experiences and upbringings. So again, you know, what I did was commit an armed robbery, but there was a reason I did it. You know what I mean? Until we get to the reasons, you know what I mean? Then the what's are are going to continue. Now, for me, when I think about what pushes people towards crime, I have a hard time not believing that it's almost imperative for the people that make money at the highest echelons to continue a cycle of people failing and people staying in recidivism because that's the only thing that could feed the beast because, God forbid, they take the money, invest it, and see people gra- gravitate out of the environments that push them towards prisons, towards drugs, and towards these kind of crimes that pull us all away from our families. How do you feel about that? I, I, I'm in 100% agreement. Joe, if you looked at the money, like if you want to know the truth about something, you follow the money, right? I mean, that's bottom line. So for a guy that goes to prison, the state of Michigan anyway, budgets like just under 40 grand for that first year they're in prison. Right. And every other year following is just over 30. Right. Yeah. So 
so that first year, the state's getting almost a $10,000 bill more than they would for the consecutive years after that first. So they have a parole system in Michigan. It's a truth and sentencing state, meaning you have to do the minimum sentence. You have a minimum and a maximum sentence, right? Well, they'll cut people loose knowing full well that they're not ready or they, they've not addressed the things that had them there in the first place, right? And they'll let them go knowing that they're going to get that first year money again as soon as they re reoffend. So wow. it is, it's a cash cow, man, and it's set up to fail. So I studied sociology when I was in prison, man, and there was an experiment that they did. I, I, and I don't know where it was, what state, what college, uh, but this group of students were asked to, uh, to, uh, to design a system that was set up to alienate people from their families, to keep them from their families, to uh, to grind them underfoot, and to to we talked a little bit about this last last time we talked. You know, you kick a guy around or a woman around for long enough, instead of coming out of prison and wanting to rejoin the world, they want to come out and fucking throw rocks at it and burn it down. So, uh, yeah, it, it's it's they anyway. They designed the system, you know that. Uh, that mimicked the way the state set up. It's it's set up to fail, and the state doesn't rehabilitate people. Uh, you could take every program you that there's available in the prison system. Uh, they can force you to do it, but the change comes from you as an individual, not from any kind of program they force upon. Forced morality is is a joke. You know, it it, it comes from within. The change. You know, you can modify behavior, but until you really change, it's just modifying behavior. You know what I mean? When you get back, when that starting pistol sounds or when them gates open, you're back at it. You know what I mean? Now, thinking about the duress and the situation that brought you into prison, and I have to wonder what elements do you think deep inside you gave you the extra leverage to not fall all the way to the bottom and be the kind of person that you are talking about right now where you rose up and you got your shit together. What do you think inside of you specifically gave you an advantage towards not getting stuck to the bottom of that system and actually getting yourself out of it? Well, so I spent most of my forties in prison and uh, in my younger years, I, I had, known what it was like to take care of people and love people and have a family and be grounded and rooted. Um, there's not a lot of people in the prison system that have experienced those same blessings. So I knew better, you know, I knew what it was, uh, what it meant to provide for, to protect, to teach, to structure, to, uh, you know, just to hold a family and work towards something that was bigger than yourself. So that was my motivation uh, in prison. And I, I just knew better, man. I had lived my, most of my life against the things that I had done, against what I had become. And uh, I just knew better, Joe. So, you know, when, when I was separated myself from the life that I was living, uh, it's, it screamed in my ear every day. You know what I mean? It was like a, a lead suit. 
I knew that every day I woke up, I, I needed to do something to make sure that this never happened again. And uh, I, I'm embarrassed to say that it happened in the first place, but it, I mean, it did. And I own it. I'm, I'm accountable. Um, but I also spent every single day of almost a decade making sure that uh, all those little ugly spots, all them little dark secrets, um, you know, were dealt with. So that, that was my, uh, um, I guess, saving grace. Now, reemerging and connecting back with your loved ones, you've not been without tragedy since you got out. No. And this whole and this whole world has shifted greatly since you first in the prison. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the things that change in your life, some of the things that happen, but I don't want you to, you know, within your own boundaries, talk about some of the things that in your personal life that you observed and things that happened once you got out and the kind of things that you had to do to kind of maintain focus now that you kind of completed the goal of getting out of jail. Um, well, I, I think specifically you're talking about losing my daughter. Um, I got out of prison and, uh, in April with COVID, the world was shut down. Um, and while the world was still uncertain about things and it was dangerous, you know, this COVID, everybody was afraid. My daughter, my firstborn with her one-year-old grandson was coming to see me knowing that I was COVID positive because, because she loved me. Um, you know, uh, I believe that love isn't always pretty. Uh, sometimes we had a connection issue and we lost Jeff's audio in this section. Jeff was speaking about his love and despite being prison, he was able to enjoy his daughter's visits. Um, that's what my daughter was doing, but I got maybe two months with her when I got out of prison and, um, and she died tragically and suddenly. And, uh, you know, of all the seasons that I've been through, and I've been through quite a few, Joe, uh, that was by far the toughest, man. And uh, I think about her every day, man. But, uh, you know, yeah, things are different. Things have changed, man. You know, these holidays come and go. And I thought in prison, uh, uh, they were they were rough. They were hard, man. Right? But getting out of prison. I lost both of my grandfathers when I was in prison. My dad committed suicide while I was in prison. Uh, I lost my daughter when I was out. My older brother was killed when I was in prison. Uh, there's been a lot of things that have happened, man, that uh, don't make sense or that hurts deeply, man. But when these holidays come and go, it, they're bittersweet. Yes, I'm a free man, but there's so many things that are different, so many things that have changed. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's rough, man, but you know what, as rough as it is, I know there's others out there that have it rougher and, uh, and I'm grateful for the life that I've been given. And, um, and, and I just put one foot in front of the other and walk it out. And I've got some really good people in my corner, um, that love me unconditionally that advocate, advocate for me at every turn. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really grateful, man, but tough times are never going to go away. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's painful. Life is pain, dude. You know, love is pain. It makes you vulnerable. You could close it all off. You could build walls. You could brick them up as sky high, but you know what? 
love hurts, bro. So, but I'm not going to continue or discontinue to love just because it hurts. You know, to, to live a life without love is not living at all. So I would rather have the pain associated with the love, with feeling close and intimate with people than, uh, than just to brick it all off and, and, and not feel anything at all. First, I just want to say that I knew that I knew about your brother and some of your loss, but there, this is just a testament to the character and your, your literally your iron will that you got yourself out of prison and that so many people close to you are no longer with you as you're out and you haven't turned your back on the kind of will you need it. Like, I think there's people who if they were sitting with the amount of loss that you had kidding out that would have gave up so i, I agree 1000 percent what you're saying about love and i agree 1000 percent that to remove yourself from being capable of loving someone and feeling the love of another person is probably one of the greatest disservices you can do as a human because as you said this life is pretty fucking difficult already and depending on where our chips are given when we we're born, it can be a lot harder, it could be easier, but to strip one of the most important tenets of life, which is love away from your life because of things like this, I see a lot of people do that. And it's just a testament to, to character and what's really inside of you that you're willing to persevere through all this loss. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. Thanks. And um, for me, knowing, knowing, the kind of people that are in your corner and giving you love. I have no doubt that there is a reciprocal situation. You feel that love and you're not going to fail them. And that all you're struggling inside to get to this point isn't in vain because you have these people on outside, even though you don't have all the people you were hoping for, you do have these people. Yep. And so agreed, man. Agreed. But put them, put them fucked up. Joe, I, 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 Joe, listen to me. I mean, I don't think there's, I almost think because you're honest with yourself and I do think, you know, I, I just hit my forties. I do think as you get older, you, you strip away a part of you. That's like, I don't want to tell somebody I'm fucked up. And the fact that you can do this and we're sharing this publicly just is another sign of not only your growth, but your ability to understand, you know, to show everybody like, Hey man, this is, I'm human. It, it, you would actually be sociopathic if you didn't say you were fucked up. If you're like, yeah, I don't care. If you're like, yeah, I don't care. I got a tour next month. You know, like I'd be like, oh, Jeff's on full serial killer mode. But the fact that the fact that you're able to do this, and the fact that you're able to, I, I think that I think that when we admit our our weaknesses and our faults, it, it it emboldens and strengthens others because they don't feel so alone. You know what I mean? I think more. you held those cards to your chest and just ran around with this stoic attitude, like everything was good. I, you know, people don't learn like that, man. You have to share your life experience with others, man, to give them the strength to make it through. They say, if you know the way you're supposed to show it to others, I'm not necessarily sure I know the way, but I'm going to give my strength and my abilities, you know what I mean? And the wisdom and the know-how that I I've come to know over the years to other people and hope that they glean something from it. You know, I think that, uh, in our weakness, it becomes other strength. Well, I'm sure that, you know, not only your, your tenure in the band and the, 
the presence of who you are within your own social circles and, and, and who people know you, they know that you're strong. But I think the real test of someone who is strong is to show vulnerability. And, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly that there's times when we have to show people that we can overcome things. So when you are going through something and you're like showing that, like you said, stoic, like stone face, like this is no factor, you're not able to illustrate and help someone else see the path because they don't know that you're on it. You know, to them, they're like, oh, it's Jeff, he's fine. So it's it's a big step, and I think that it needs it, you need to recognize that it's very human of you, and I think sometimes in the unfortunate like uh, the background of the world of Polda's life and CTYC, I don't think people realize the depth of you as a person. But I, I got to know that side of you before this, but to hear you say that you're trying to illustrate to people you know, what you're going through. That's a big, that's a big thing, man, because oftentimes people in hardcore punk and people in bands, they want to show a persona. They wear masks, Joe. They wear, we, we've wore masks our whole lives, bro. Where do you, besides the DTE work and the ability to connect with your children and where do you put your feet forward being out Obviously, you know, not not we'll we'll talk about the band stuff in a few, but like where do you put your feet forward now that the task of getting out has been accomplished and you know moving forward? It sounds like your 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 mindset is perfect to not go back in. What's the stuff that's pushing your feet forward right now besides the band stuff? Well, be, be, before I answer that, I I, I want to just backtrack real quick about the vulnerability thing, man. It's not in those invincible attitudes, man, but in vulnerability, man, that lead to the most intimate human connections, man. It's not somebody that's going to stand there and say, uh, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm rock hard. I'm hard as nails. I'm as solid as they come that people connect with, man. It's, it's, it's those vulnerabilities, man, that lead to the most intimate human connections there are, man. But move, yeah, that's no, all. No, 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 no. I, I actually, that's a great point to make. And I think about you got in context to you know when we were when we did that. We talked earlier about being on tour together. When we were on that tour. Like there are kids who be like, "Oh, that's Jeff. Don't walk up and say hi to him." You know, he's you know he's just he's in cold his life. Meanwhile, you walk up and we have a conversation, and you know we're drinking coffee, and there's jokes, and there's lightheartedness, and there's a revealing side to people that you're may not be aware of because people think, Oh, this guy's in this band, this guy's from this city, this guy's in some crew that there's no depth of, of emotion. And we're just like these robot and we only have one modality of uh, how we feel. And I absolutely agree that vulnerability in itself is strength, because if you're able to be comfortable with your vulnerability and show the world that there's a no fear there. You know, what are you afraid of someone being like, haha, you have feelings? Like, yeah, it's good to have feelings. I think when we were young, we I, I know personally there was so much going on at different stages earlier in, in my own traveling and touring and doing the crazy shit. But I the battle was shutting all the emotions down so you could get through the days and then coming home and realizing you shut down so many emotions that you had to like figure out how to feel the people around you when you're home around them. And it was a hard thing. And I and I lost people 
and I lost years with my sister and lost years with my kids being in that kind of like cycle of, you know, detachment so we can just do the crazy shit we were up to. So the fact that hearing you say that the vulnerability is a strength, it's a really important lesson and I'm glad that you shared it with people. People detach themselves from the emotions to it's a self survival. It's a, it's a survival tactic, man. People do it in prison all the time. It's that emotional switch, right? If your heart and your mind is on the things that you love, uh, uh, it it makes things hard and makes things dangerous in the system anyway, in the system that I'm just coming from, uh, it, emotion will put a target on you. So you turn those switches off and detach from all that just as a survival mechanism. And people do it outside of prison as well. You know, if they're doing something that they know damn well they shouldn't be doing, they separate themselves not only from their emotions, for, but, but from the people that will reel them back in or tell them a little something about themselves or call them out on the BS that they're up to. So it, the detachment is just a survival mechanism and that, that human beings use all the time, whether it's inside or outside. No, I agree. I find a lot of what made me detached was knowing that I wanted to take this time to be on the road and do the things that I was excited about. And that, things at my home were not good. Right. And when I was a couple of years before that, you know, like when we first started punishment, we had talked about it on the podcast with Damien. The first mode of punishment was just a bunch of kids that didn't want to be at home. We didn't want to be anywhere near our houses. I mean, there were tours where Damien was sleeping in his girlfriend's car where we were couch hopping. So then when like on that tour I did with you with the Shadow Rome and Ramallah. Yeah. I mean, things were a lot better at home and I was missing shit at home to be on these tours and I had to shut down emotion and not be, not feel the draw back home. And that's eventually what took me to not tour anymore was like realizing like, I love hardcore music and I put a lot of effort post touring into the fest and different shows in Philadelphia, but I couldn't be the guy who just toured because I was torn away from so much of the things that I really enjoyed, which was being at home, which is kind of fucked up because the touring was the thing that made me happy to not deal with home. And then once I had, the home stuff i was on tour and i wanted to be back at home it's the fucked up duality and the seesaw motion that's exactly what it is it's that duality bro that's all it is man yeah but you know what making that decision is a responsible thing to do you know what i mean like you got family you got babies man that i mean as fat there's so many men out there are not fathers to the children that they they bear um you know somewhere along the lines man men stopped be, being fathers. They wanted to be buddies with their kids and they wanted to be peers with their kids and their friends. And, you know, they stopped being fathers, man. And that's one ingredient and in why the world's so fucked up right now is because men aren't strong. They're not making the responsible decisions to be the people they need to be for the people they bring into this world. But I did it. I did it most of my life, man. But, uh, you know, it's a little bit late, late in the game, but it's never too late. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my best, man, to, to make sure that uh, the people that I love and the people that I brought into this world are, are prepared for this fucking not so fair life, not so nice life. Now, at the stage where you're at, where you're reconnecting and you're back in the regular world, do you find that 
not only reemerging and like building the family bond back up, but do you feel like your children are getting a second look and are connecting with the person that you are now? And like, how's that vibe? Or do you feel like it's still like touch and go at this point? It's, it's touch and go. Uh, I'm, I'm really trying, uh, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier that, uh, they look to me for, for, for guidance, man. They relied on me for, for security. You know, they trusted in me for, for everything that they, their little lives had in it. Um, and I betrayed all of that. I betrayed their trust, um, their reliance on me. Um, you know, I, and, and they're hurt still, even though this was something that happened 10 years ago. And prior to that too, I, I was, I was there for them, but like we were just talking, I was on the road a lot. Um, I wasn't really making the responsible choices as a father. You know, my kids always knew they were loved. You know, we would go on vacations. We would build the forts out of every pillow and blanket in the house. Um, you know, we, we did the things families do, right? But we kind of floated from one day to the next and without any really kind of direction. And uh, I, I feel like I kind of failed them in pre pre preparing them for, for the lives they had in front of them. Um, and then, so I did what I did and I, I was gone for most of their formative years. So they're hurt and they might not trust me fully yet. I think an apology, a verbal apology is one thing, but seeing somebody walk something out is a completely different uh, uh, situation. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk it out and just continue to make myself available and open to them and you know, we're making, we're making some headway, but it's not where I'd like it to be. And I don't think it's where they'd like it to be, but, uh, hopefully time will heal it. And, uh, and my walk will prove to them that, you know, that, that should have never happened. And that, uh, one day again, they'll look to me and rely on me and trust me for, for everything a father should be, uh, entrusted with. I feel like, it's what you're talking about is two separate paths right now that you're on. On one hand, you have to walk the same thing over and over because every day is the opportunity to fail or succeed. And if you know that you're getting up the next day and the sun's rising, you have a chance to show them that they still have the father that they had. Yeah. And I think it's just time. It's time for you over time that you will heal yourself from feeling you let them down. Just not this isn't a marathon, you know, or this, uh, this isn't a race. This is a marathon. You know, it's, it's, you're, you're not going to sprint and they're like, Oh my God, you know, he's back. It's three weeks later. Everything's good. It's going to take years. But I think the fact that you're so committed and the fact that you did the 10 years is what's going to really count in the long run of showing them that they have their father back and that he has always been there. It just, and I, I agree they do, but it's just going to take some time. And yeah, that's, that's basically what I was getting at is it's consistency. You know what I mean? It, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's slow and steady wins the race for sure, man. I, so I feel every, and every day is an opportunity to show them, you know, words are words, you know, you got to show people, you know what I mean? You got to walk it out. Yeah. That show and prove, you know, Hey, it's not just words. He means it. And, right. and I feel I feel the important thing is that you're you're on task and nothing in the last 10 years has shown more that you're on task and just your 
your positive mindset and the fact that you're unfettered by this. Where do you feel, where do you, where do you see yourself? Is it just going to be, do you, you have a lot of, you have a lot of back time that you have to deal with and you have like steps through the parole system that you have to deal with or because you have a job, it's a little bit easier on yourself. It, it's a little easier. I still got hoops to jump through. I got, uh, I only had, I got about 13 more months of parole. Um, then we're having a big barbecue. Yes, sir. We are Joe for real. We are We're having the big one. This is it, yeah, man. Listen, man, we are. <laughs> no, it's 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 important to understand. People listening is that a lot of times the system. I almost feel like they set up minefields and booby traps just in case, and it gets frustrating where you're at a point where you're you want to be, you know, like for those listening, you can do a sentence time. But unless you do all of your time in jail, when you get out, you have a, a period where you can go right back in and they put these little things out there. Job requirements, you can only live in certain places. You got to go for meetings. So if you have a job, there's days where you can't go because you have to go to these stupid meetings, urine tests, drop in the house tests and all these things, all these things the system does so they could catch you and put you back, even though you're your feet are on the ground and you're where you need to be to move forward. I think it's one of the most fucked up aspects. And I understand it's to keep people from recidivism, but I find that there's an element where the wrong person, the wrong parole officer is looking just to fuck with somebody and put them right back in the bad hole. Joe. So there, there are all those hoops, right? If I, if I got caught around a, a fucking squirt gun, because it's a it's considered or fashioned as a weapon i could go back to prison i have a tail that goes well into the 2034 or 5 if i got caught around a, a dart gun a squirt gun a bb gun i could go to back to prison for another 10 plus years there it it is set up to to it's it's set up to 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 keep people going in and out. It's revolving door, um, but you know failure is not an option. So I, I'm just gonna do what I got to do to get off this paper, and you know, and live my life. But there's a lot there's a lot of people out there that have been violated, their parole's violated because of curfews or because of all the things you just mentioned. There's a there's a million and one little booby traps out there. Um, but they're clear and concise and they're on paper. So if you fall, if you get tripped up in one of them, it's your own, it's your own fault. I mean, yeah, you can have a bold parole officer that has it out for you and they can make it a little easier to go back. But in the, at the end of the, at the end of the day, it's up to you to stay out of prison. Well, I feel specifically because a lot of what a lot of what you were doing to get yourself inside was cause like you know like the cause and effect and without that cause there's not going to be another repeat effect so i don't think you're going to end up in that same scenario and um, based upon the fact that you had this goal of reconnecting the family and making those bonds tight and the fact that you've got some good great people in your corner you reconnected with roy um you have people that love you and around you that I don't see 
the disconnect or that kind of like, fuck it, no one else loves me, I might as well just go. You know, there's there's always that that self that uh, destruction or that nihilism, and I've and I've seen that, and I have a couple of cousins that have since they were in their you know some of them since they were in their tweens in and out of prisons because they never had the kind of things that you're talking about. And then next thing you know, they're on the bad side of 40 with a rap sheet that keeps them from working anywhere but a fucking gas station. And it's because they don't have the things that you have. So I guess that's got to come from within, man. You like, I, I truly believe that it's up to every man, woman, child, to become the person they want to become and live the lives that they want to live. If you just fucking threw three sheets to the wind and said, fuck it every single time life didn't go your way, life would never go your way, man. I believe that the best things come to those who make the best out of life on life's terms. You know, death and uncertainty and tragedy, that's always going to be a part of life, man. But if you, if you just fucking threw the towel and every time something painful happened, or every time something tragic happened, where where would we be? You know what I mean? I love that you have this, not only this positive mental attitude, but you're directing it towards yourself. And I find that not only is it inspirational, but there's a lot of value in people who are listening, understanding that this isn't some this isn't some infomercial for you. This is what this is instead of like the detachment we talked about. This is your survival mode. Joe, this, this is what you had life my whole yeah. life, bro. <laughs> now this is this is what I was really hoping to get at when we spoke, because there is a strength in you, and I think that, you know, the part of me, part of me that sees people excited about the Holder's Life stuff that's coming out, I feel like there's a full circle moment coming down your way. I truly do. And I feel that because you've manifested things to go your way, the fact that you stayed open up to reconnect with Roy, the fact that you guys are talking about, you know, I mean, for first of all, the fact that Holder's Life is remastering Born to Land Hard. The fact that, you know, people have heard you speak on other podcasts. You're not shut off to this new world. And I I really can't wait. I want to be, I like, I don't care where or when it is, but your first coldest life show, I'm going to drive out. I'm going to be there just so that way you can fucking see that the legacy that you've built up on, it's there for you, man. And I, and, and it's, it's well-deserved, not, not because of anything else, just because you've really gone through hell and back. And this is the best Jeff mentally that I've heard in so many years. It's fucking fantastic. Hey man, I appreciate it, buddy. It's it's genuine and sincere though, man. Uh, the place that I'm at, I've Joe, listen, man. I've never known a gratitude, a strength, a drive, a perspective um, that I know now. Uh, and sometimes, it, you know, it comes from some uh, not so pleasant circumstance. I think them li- lives lived in ease and comfort. I don't think carry the same weight or teach the same things as a life uh such as the lives that we've lived um it's 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 been rough man but i've I've learned some things man uh some profound truths about character and about picking yourself up and dusting yourself off 
and and reaching back for your fellow fucking human being um it's we're not in this for ourselves man we're in it for each other and uh you know i'm, I'm grateful man i'm grateful for the pain i'm grateful for the the loss i'm grateful for the uncertainty and uh for the prison sentence uh because out of it came a lot of uh a lot of things that i never would have come to know so I, i'm i'm truly grateful person man i don't think that uh people can make sense of uh equating gratitude with a long prison sentence but that best describes the condition of my heart bro i'm grateful man <clears throat> well I, I feel like that saying what doesn't kill us only makes us stronger and i know that let's say you didn't get caught in that scenario the fact that you were dealing with all the things in your system it was only a matter of time for something would have caught up with you and so i agree wholeheartedly what you're talking about you know the weird thing to look at a prison system go i'm grateful but in consideration that you're on this side of the dirt and that you have this fortitude and strength of will i think that that's an absolute thing to be grateful for joe when 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 i got arrested buddy listen man i weighed 129 pounds man Wow. I was spiritually bankrupt, bro. I was morally fucking just all over the place. I was getting in shootouts. I was robbing dealers. Um, my arrest was a rescue, man. I, 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 it needed to happen, man. And I'm ashamed to say it, but I, it needed to happen, man. I went complete savage mode. And, uh, and if that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. I'm interested in why you 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 go back to the shame part when I feel like mainly because I know so I know you I mean like you said we talked about this you were never you were never into the hard drugs so I I, I guess because I've never really did any kind of drugs really except for like you know so we when I was a kid I I I'm wondering why you're carrying the shame when I think that others would say well it was me on the drugs or is this some kind of ownership where you taking responsibility even though that you know you were so bad on the drugs that you have to is that part of your recovery is taking taking it on that way well i, I mean you got to be you got to hold yourself accountable the the reason i'm embarrassed and ashamed about it joe is because i knew better uh the the older brother that was killed a couple marches ago while i was in prison still i had him as an example to look at my whole life he was a lifelong junk he's got like 30 years in the prison system three, four, five, six years at a time. Uh, he, he would change and he would get out and he'd shoot right back to the streets doing what he did. And I watched that my whole life as well as half the people in my city. Um, I, so I knew better, I knew better. And that's where the embarrassment and shame comes from. And because I'm, I'm a person that claims to love his family and the people that he loves more than life itself. And, to do the things that I did means pushing that love and that responsibility I had towards those people and for those people aside. So that, that guilt and that shame come from that and knowing better. I mean, and, and again, I think that shame and accountability are two different things. I think shame nowadays is more a, a figure of speech. I'm embarrassed. Uh, but, 
more than anything, I'm accountable and I hold myself responsible. So I, I don't, I don't look in the mirror and, uh, and hate what I see anymore. There was a time I did when I was doing what I did, I couldn't even look in the mirror. So I guess just to clarify, shame is more a figure of speech. I hold myself accountable for the decisions I make good or bad. And, uh, yeah, maybe that clarifies a little bit. I'm, I don't live my life in shame. I, I live my life holding myself accountable for what I do. I, do I do it perfectly? No, I'm a fucking human being. And, and I fuck up all the time with my interactions with the people I love. Um, you know, again, it goes back to my life experience and the things that I've been through. I'm a fucked up person, man. I do my best, but I'm still a fucked up person. Well, I feel like a lot of a lot of us are products of our environment, and the fucked up thing for us is that we find the music that brought us all to this moment that we're talking here is it was a way to shelter us and protect us from the full like you know like it's almost like an umbrella against the full weight of the the evils of our product of our environment. But you strip away the shows and the bands. And, you know, for us to go back to, like, you know, like, think about it, you go on tour, you're away from all the things that you're talking about, your brother and your city, and you go home, and you're right back in that. And so it's it's often, you know, not only, like, glorified, but they don't really understand, like, this stuff carries with you. And for me, hearing you say, I really appreciate you explaining the shame and that it's accountability. Because I've, I've always known you to be honest with yourself and I've always known you to be forward. You know, there's not a, there's not a lot that you're, you're, you've never been someone to blow smoke up someone's ass. So I don't see you as someone who would blow smoke up your own ass. And thinking about the fact that you can now face yourself in the mirror and you can move forward is a big deal. And I think that people need to understand where that strength comes from. And I'm really happy he spoke on that. It's, it's interesting that people in hardcore now leagues away from anything that you've talked about, you know, and it's, I, I think in younger times we would say, you know, this isn't for them, but they celebrate the culture and they support the culture. But this has been for those listening, this is like, this is what really is behind these people who do these, like, you know, do these bands, you know, like, Jeff isn't sitting there being like, I need to write a song about this. You, you cold as life has always spoke from the heart about your environment. And I find that the, the fucked up thing is you probably name a million people. I mean, just in, just in your band, you know, there's the people that you've lost because the whirlpool of shit that's in your city and pulls people down, you know, like the other day we, we counted like five people that were dead just in punishment, you know, like, it's fucked up, man. And you're just like, you know, we were, we were around, you know, since the beginning of really 20 years of different guys that died and we can't, you know, we can't hang out with them. So you guys is even more, I don't think that it's easy to explain the importance of being, you either have to leave the environment or you have to do something different with your life or otherwise you will fall and succumb to it. You definitely will, man. You definitely will. You can also, I, I really truly believe in the power of one man because everything that we say and everything that we do teaches somebody else good or bad uh, 
a, a different way. You know, if, if we're out there running and gunning, you know, shooting and, and going crazy, people look up to that. You know what I mean? But if you're out here talking wisdom, being the voice of reason, man, showing people a different way, being strong when things are fucked up, you're also showing somebody a different way. So I, I believe that, uh, you know, that our words matter and our deeds matter and that people look at them and they learn from them, whether they, whether it's conscious or not, people learn from the things that we do, the things that we say, you, you mentioned this conversation, not being for this younger generation, but it is for them, man, because these problems are age old, Joe, these problems are not going to go away, man. People are going to fall. People are going to, people are not going to know where to look. You know what I mean? And, it, and if it wasn't for the people that have gone through some of these things, they may not have anybody to look to or talk to or listen to. And, uh, and we can be those people, man. You know, I know it sounds idealistic and uh, almost fairy tale-ish, but you know, this is life, man. And, 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 and things uh, are a little more basic rather than complex. We make things fucked up. We make things complex, but it can be as simple as grabbing some cat and, 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 and telling them, Hey, listen, I've been through this, man. And this is what I've learned from it. And this is what I know from it. And this is what I can do for you. You know, sometimes that's as simple as it can get. And that's sometimes that's all it takes. We have a um, person in Philadelphia who went through 30 years of just being exactly what we talked about, just like in and out of prisons, drug problems forever. And this is a George, he'll probably be listening to the show. He's got a couple years of being clean and sober. And he, he'll rate me and be like, I wish I spent my life on hardcore. I don't think I would have fell into this world. And I tell him, dude, you came, at the hardcore came to you at the right time. And it's insane to think something that sometimes we take for granted is another person's like all, you know, author for strength. Like this man went from being on heroin and fucking up in our worst neighborhoods to buying every record that comes out. He's got a good union job. He's a good single father and hardcore gives him part of his strengths to live through the day. And I find that what you said about needing to, explain to people you know what you've been through i'm really happy that you talk about this up on the podcast because i know there's people like george that need to hear it from someone like you that have been through it i've never been on the hard drugs you know so i can't really alliterate and the fact that you're able to sit on the other side of this and say the things you're doing is absolutely going to be so powerful these people that deal with daily struggles and their own demons you know yeah man it's important to you there's strength in numbers man and there's strength in just knowing that somebody else has struggled like you struggled and, and then come out the other side of it stronger and better. Have you thought about, or do you do anything in your own group of friends? Like this is a weird thing for connect. I guess you haven't connected with too many people because of COVID, but I wonder if people who have known you a long time would be surprised by hearing you on this turn or do you feel like when you're back in the world and things are rolling that you're going to be able to espouse some of this and turn some people around? What do you, how do you feel about that? Um, well, anybody that's known me in the past and knows who I am now knows that, knows that there's a difference, uh, that there's something different about me. Um, and I think that people are still trying to figure it out. I've been misunderstood most of my life. I'm still pretty misunderstood. 
<laughs> uh, but uh, there's the, I'm 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 Joe. I'm a different person than I used to be, man. I don't I don't wear masks anymore. I like you mentioned. I I've never been one to blow smoke, but I fucking wore masks, man. Um, dude, I've lived my life with thoughts of inadequacies and anger. Um, I've I've felt like uh, burning the fucking world down. You know what I mean? And if it wasn't for the people that I loved in it, I probably would have, or at least tried. Um, but I don't, I don't feel that way anymore, man. Um, bro, there's beauty in life, man. There's beauty in, in tragedy. Um, and there's a fucking million people that need um, somebody to lean on, man, or, or look to. And I want to be that person, man. And people, uh, people don't really know how to take me yet. You know what I mean? Because it's so different from the, the from the life that I've lived. Um, so yeah, man, I'm on unfamiliar ground, man. And, uh, and I'm just going to walk it out and, and see what I can do and see if I can help some of my fellow human beings, man. Uh, I mean, this, I'm, I'm not trying to be no hippie weirdo. I'm just saying, man, that there's a lot of people out there that don't know the way, man. And I feel like because of what, what I've been through, I might know a little something that might help a couple people along the way. And that's all I want to do, man. I definitely agree that you have the ability to do this. And I don't think it's a hippie thing. I think, you know, think about just the interaction point of any person who comes to any kind of hardcore show. They're looking for something, whether it's belonging, they identify with this. And I find that in you in 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 the world to come, because obviously with COVID there's not shows and all the bullshit. But having this kind of Jeff in the hardcore scene and having this kind of Jeff present in your individual, you know, personal friendship lives, you're gonna be impactful. But I, I like because you have because your last interaction with hardcore was such a long time ago, I don't think you're really ready for <laughs> You may be, uh, I don't think you're biting up more than you chew, but I don't think you realize the amount of young kids got that are going to be, Jeff, how about that? Because these kids are exactly what we're saying. They don't find hardcore now because they're bored. They're finding hardcore because something's missing in their lives. And I think that someone like you can show them the way and can guide them. So I think there's a symbiotic situation that'll, that'll come from you being active again and is being able to see the kind of person that you are and glean and learn from. And I think that that may actually help heal yourself a bit because then you'll be able to feel good that some of this hard learned experience has been, you know, able to keep people out of the pitfalls that you fell into. That That's my hope, bro. So because we've been talking a while, I don't want to forego letting people know that, your intention is once legal scenarios and COVID allow us, there's going to be a cold as life again. Oh, geez. Uh, Joe, I don't know, man. So me and Roy and, uh, and beast have been playing, uh, making some music. We play some cold as life songs. We play some hate ink songs and, and, and we've been working on some new stuff. Um, Roy and I have talked about doing cold as life, uh, but we want to do it right. Yeah. It's been cheapened over the years. Uh, 
we don't we we don't want to throw just you know five musicians together and call it cold as life but we've we've talked about doing cold as life we me him and beast have been playing together we do some cold as life stuff we do some hating stuff um we do some new stuff but uh nothing set in stone we uh you know like i said it's been cheapened over the years and if it, if we're going to do anything it's got to make sense it's got to be right um you know that's that's about it it's not it's not out of the realm of possibilities we you know we get together every week and we make music and we talk about it um but but again it's just got to be right when i when i had there was a time when all at war wasn't really active in playing shows, which is kind of funny because it was only like 2008 to 2012. When I hit Mike up, he was like, we fucking practice every week. I just don't want to play any shows right now. <laughs> that's like a four-year period, man, of practice. Well, that's a, but that's the thing is, is because of them guys have been friends for so long and you know them guys really well. You know, like, to him, he's like, yeah, we're still going to practice. Doesn't mean we're going to fucking play. Right. You know, and and... and what you just said reminds me of exactly what he was saying. Cause he's like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we will play, but right now we just kind of jam out and we kind of, you know, write a bunch of shit just for fun. When you do the coldest life stuff, do you find it to be, do you find any emotional content that isn't like we're playing music? Like, is there anything that comes back to you? Or do you think because of the cheap and stuff that it, is there a bittersweet? What are your emotions when you guys um, rip into the coldest life songs? It's uh all kinds of emotions, man. Uh, you know, it was such a big part of my life, man, for so long. Uh, and some of the songs we've been playing have been songs for, damn, I want to say 20 plus years. So yeah. yeah, there's emotions attached to them for sure. Now, I'm, I will tell you that the internet has, since you've been gone and we're away, we went from MySpace to Facebook and there is an entire universe of young kids that they have an insane love for Cold as Life. And it to me, it's a tribute that you guys are heralded in the way that you are. And there's like a band from Detroit, um, NEG, which is a never ending game. Them guys, them guys are really like one of the bands that kids really love right now. And it's surreal to me because I think about so many times when we be wearing coldest life hoodies and people were into other bands. And right now it's a great time for coldest life fans because you're active in this podcast realm and you guys are releasing music. You guys have remastered 10 to midnight. You guys are doing the born land harm with Dom. And I think that hopefully you will see some of the excitement from these kids once all this comes to, I mean, I already got my hoodie from Dom. I ordered it. I was very excited. Nice. Fucking cool as hell to see it again. And, but I really hope that you get, even if it's just one time to get to experience a quote as life with like a shit ton of young, young, young kids, because hardcore has changed so dramatically, but it's it's not like you're walking in and they're not hardcore kids. It's just like it's just like the past. It's just younger, more vibrant, a bit safer in a lot of ways. But that'll allow someone like well, that'll also allow someone like Cold as Life to get through a whole set and not be like, all right, who's getting fucked up? 
<laughs> and I, I know that right now the important thing is parole and feeling good and reconnecting with the family. But I really hope for sole purpose for you to see it one time that, and, and for those listening, like Coda's life had some crazy fucking shows. I've been there through crazy shows. I've also been there where it wasn't a packed room, but everybody in the room was going fucking off for Coda's life. I just want you to see a coldest life set in the modern sense. So you can kind of feel validated. I don't know if you need validation in that regard, but I hope that you'll feel validated to go through the efforts to do the show because there's a fan base more rabid and excited just to see it. And, you know, like I said earlier, to had Roy not been in the band, we never would have did the coldest life at this is hardcore. And I hope, and I know that since you guys are connected, whatever you guys pull out will be the most honest and genuine iteration of Coldest Life, or even if it's a medley between the Haiti songs and the Coldest Life songs. I hope that you guys get to see it because to me, going through the struggle and you know, going through what you did and coming back out, it may it may show you like, all right, there, you know, this band does matter still, and that does. 20 something years later, there's still so many kids who love this band, you know, I, you know, I, like I said, it's, it's definitely not out of the realm of possibility. And I'm kind of leaning towards saying it'll probably happen one day. I don't know where or when, or, but I, I see it happening one day. Yeah. We're in a good spot because there's no shows because of COVID and you've got other priorities that are obviously first in line. So it's not like a, Hey, when are you guys playing? But I'm just I'm putting it in your ear that I I think that the last time you guys were playing was a weird almost downtime for hardcore, and it's in a completely separate light. Like it's it's insane the what the scene is now, and I just want you to experience the positive end of that just for your own sake. So you say, "Holy shit! All right, these motherfuckers really do care. It'll be fucking great to see." We're gonna we're gonna do I'm gonna do a couple of real quick questions and we'll let you go. I know you fucking worked your ass off and I don't wanna keep you too long. We've talked a lot about your growth and we talked a lot about everything that you went through. And usually I'd say what would be one of your biggest regrets. But instead, because you've been so fucking honest with this, what was one of the most simplest, not even what normal people would think about? What was one of the most simplest joys that you got to experience once you were out? Like the most simple thing you think of that we were like, holy fuck, like when you first were like legit out and past your sentence. Joe, listen, man. So I can't specifically answer that, right? Because there's so many. If there's one thing that I've learned in life, man, is that those seemingly insignificant moments and life's little moments are not so little or insignificant, man. Every fucking moment matters, man. From our conversation and what you say to me and I say to you, or, or reaching over here and touching somebody that I love, or sitting down at a dinner table with some people that you care about, or having a beer with somebody you haven't seen, or picking up the fucking tab for somebody behind you at a drive-through restaurant. Man, listen, man, everything matters, Joe. and this in its simplest form everything fucking matters so i'm grateful for every moment man no that that goes beyond the pale of what i was even thinking you were going to come up with and i really appreciate you saying that in fact i feel like that's probably one of the most 
overlook things in, in life, like the small things. Like you worked outside. We will work outside in the sun and it's like a hot 90 something degree day and the wind will come and I'll stop. And people look at me like we always we made a joke out of it. It's like, yo, you got to respect the breeze, man. Like just <laughs> respect that breeze. So fucking hot. You get that yeah. one breeze. You got to just like take that minute and let it come in, you know? Yeah. Cold drink of fucking water, bro. I mean, you know what I mean? There's some things in life that people take for granted and overlook until it's gone, man. That whole, I hate cliches, but most of them are true, right? You don't know what you have until it's gone. So sitting down with some people that you love, having a meal that you want to eat, you know what I mean? Putting fucking clothes. You know, there's so many things that people in this world, not as Americans, don't ever experience, man. Eating a fucking handful of peanuts, dude. There's people in other countries that never tasted a peanut. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's things that, that we take for granted in life, man, that we should not take for granted. No, I think that's absolutely great advice because I think a lot of this world is so fucking spoiled. I think about, uh, I work on a high rise downtown. We're building it. And there's like people who get like Uber eats or whatever the fuck they get. And it's like, this is the world we live in where someone will drive to your house and give you food. It's right. like, it's not a, it's nowhere near what half of the world, like most of the world has to deal with to survive, you know? Hey, people order their fucking toilet paper on Amazon nowadays. Oh, dude, I I can't even fucking imagine that. <laughs> is there is there anything with the internet now that you're back in the world that you've been surprised about in general, or is it all just overwhelming? Because uh, one of our friends, when he went in, they didn't have iPods, so when he came out, someone gave him one. He was looking at it like wait, all my music will fit the fuck in here? Like, is there any, like, moments of, like, holy fuck since you've been out, like, in the technology and the internet world, anything like that? I mean, you know, it was kind of gearing up like this when uh, when I left, but, <clears throat> you know, the, the world is at, at our fingertips now, man. You know, uh, so I was, I was mailing, so I was putting so a letter, actually, it was to my parole officer. I was putting a, putting something in an envelope and putting a stamp on it, writing the address out and the return address. One of the guys I work with on a daily basis, he's a younger cat and he's sitting next to me. He's like, I wouldn't even know how to fucking do that. You know what I mean? Because the world, the world is at everybody's fingertips now with these computers. One of these days, people are not going to fucking be picking up a pen or a pencil and writing anymore. It's all going to be digital. Um, and I know this, this doesn't answer your question, uh, I, I guess, you know, just being, having the world at your fingertips, you know what I mean? Is, uh, is a bit surprising. I'm not necessarily a fan of the direction the world's going. Uh, I think technology can be a blessing, but and also be a curse. I think it's fucking little kids up, uh, especially when parents don't monitor what they're doing or how many hours they're on it or, you know, I don't, I don't know, Joe, man, you know, the, the world's fucking complex. And remember that Shawshank Redemption when that old man got out of prison and he hung himself and he wrote that letter. He said, the world's just got itself into a great big fucking hurry. I think the world's in a hurry, man. And it, it, it needs to slow down to, uh, you know, smell them proverbial roses or, you know what I mean? Take that moment and, uh, and breathe a little bit. But, uh, I, I don't know. That probably still doesn't answer your question, but that's all I got. <laughs> no, I, I think um, 
these kind of questions are really kind of open-ended. They're not, there's not a right or wrong, but I think that the scope of what you're saying is important and that your perspective is dead on. There's a complete detachment. And I, people use the words analog, being like the old world and the digital, but the real world is something that so many young kids detached are raised away from because they got the tablets in their face yeah. or they're already creating content. And when you're like, yo, you're seven years old, let's uh, not create some content. Why don't you go to fuck out and play, climb a tree, fall, scrape your knee. Yes, man. And, and I, I, I have nephews and just seeing them develop. It's weird because they're can be the most rambunctious, crazy assholes but then they can be immediately sedated with these stupid tablets. Yeah. And and it's it's kind of it's it's something out of the twilight zone to be completely frank with you. It's it's a little it's a little off-putting at times. It it Joe, listen man, people are losing the ability to be human. You know, the human interaction is becoming a a thing of the past. Like if, if a little dude likes a little girl, you know, in in junior high school or high school he doesn't have he doesn't have what it takes to go up to this this girl and say hey my name's joe my name's jeff what's your name you know what i mean they hide behind these screens and they live their lives virtually they send little uh eggplants for 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 dicks and uh little peaches for pussies and they don't know how to interact anymore nobody has knows look at when you when you meet somebody, when we met somebody, right? You looked them in the eye and you shook their hand and you and you talked, right? Yeah. People don't do that shit anymore. People don't talk anymore, and they they're losing their ability to to interact as human beings. I'm gonna tell you, I, I'm on a job site and I'm one of the oldest guys on the on the on the crew. And lunchtime is now the most boring aspect of my life because it's all them staring at a stupid cell phone. Yeah, to the point but, where I to the point where I brought a book in to ride on the subway, and now I read it during lunch because no one talks. Whereas before lunchtime was the one time you could chat with your coworkers, eat sandwich, break balls. Yeah, and it's just it's an interesting. We are losing who we are, but it's just fucking crazy. It I'm is. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you wrap this entire thing up with either words of wisdom or just. I think you did so much with talking about words of wisdom. I want you to leave people with whatever you feel in your heart. And then what I'm going to do is for anybody listening, we'll have links to not get a hold of Jeff, but where you can get stuff for coldest life and where you can stay in touch with them via Instagram. Jeff, I absolutely love that we were able to communicate and it's kind of ironic that we're talking about the disconnect and the use of and the problem with digital and we're using zoom to do this, but <laughs> I, I promise you, and this is like a promise to the world 13 months from now, when you're free and clear barbecue, I'm coming and it don't need to be a fucking show. It could just be a fucking barbecue. We made that, we've made that Detroit drive overnight in nine and a half hours, plenty of fucking times. And we're going to do it again. Yeah. I, I absolutely love you, man. And I, I not only do I love you from the past, but I'm so happy for my friend to literally go through hell and back and become a stronger and better man than you ever could be. And I, and I love your perspective on the world. And I'm so grateful that you were able to take the time away from your family and shit to share this with everybody. Hey, Joe, listen, man, I love you, bro. I, 
we've been friends for a lot of years, man. And I'm not saying this is a sign off or any kind of cliche token bullshit. I love you, bro. And, uh, and I appreciate you, man. I appreciate the conversation. And if there's one sorry sucker out there that this helped along the way, then our job's done. But, uh, more than that, I, I, I love the conversation, man. You're a good dude. I've always fucking, uh, appreciated you respected you and uh 13 months we're, eat, we're eating a whole bunch of dead animals fuck yeah no nah, man i truly I, I i truly again you you guys were beyond kind to us when we were in our teens coming up in hardcore and instead of blowing us off you, you did the beginning of what you're talking about you gave us you gave us guidance you gave us places to stay you helped us with shows and you were just honestly there for us and that really went a long way and I'm glad to see you continue it. And 13 months from now, we're fucking eating. We're hanging out. I'll yeah, drink man. beer, but I'll drink a lot of soda. I love you, man. And I can't wait to see you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate you, bro. Love you, man. You be safe out there, bro. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I really look forward to seeing Jeff in 13 months. We have our Patreon stuff going to come up at the end of March. I was really hesitant. I wanted to have a good six months in of releasing podcasts just so those who decide to give money understand that this is something I'm not going to give the fuck up. And in fact, I can't even believe it's been six months so far since we released our first episode with Chris Bridge 9. Can't wait to hear what you guys think about the Jeff episode and I'll talk to you all next week. T-I-H-C podcast.com. Don't forget about us. Bye-bye.